Sports and Running Podcast. Uh, I am Daniel Del Piccolo, and my co-host is. Um, I'm David Harvey, and I'm just putting a T-shirt on right now. So oh, I love it, Dave. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Just just drawn a beautiful image of you. Uh, you know, after well, our, after our nice hot run today, all tanned up, putting a T-shirt <laughs> on. <Harvey. laughs> yeah. Lobster red because uh, I'm pretty ginger. So, you know. <laughs> Uh, I tell you what, we were we were just saying earlier when we that that heat today killed us. I mean, it was pretty um it was pretty warm over lunch and. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. Tomorrow it said it said up in, here uh, in in beautiful Clanfield it's going to be 34. I don't know oh. what's near you, but. Wow, that I think we get it we get it a little bit cooler. Um, tends to be down here because there's obviously a little bit of a breeze, but um yeah I think yeah. up up kind of past you and on, and onwards, especially towards London, I think they're expecting like record temperatures tomorrow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So I, I think if you don't have the sea air, then you're just going to cook, aren't you? So yeah. Um, yeah. This this weekend, actually, um, I'm going to go and pace my friends at the North Downs 100 from halfway. Ah, fantastic. That's going to be interesting because he has DNF'd a lot of races recently, and a lot of the races have been in the heat. Oh um, dear, right. Okay. I'm really hoping that if we meet him at halfway, we can just drag him round a little bit and just so hopefully he'll save some for the for the nights where it's going to be a little bit cooler. So. Mm, that's yeah. going to be quite tricky, isn't it? Because he's going to have gone through, well, yeah, the day and pretty much most of the uh, the hardship, I think, in, the, in that heat for sure. I sent him a message trying to reassure him that although it might be 31 or 32, it's it's reportedly only going to feel like 30. So. <laughs> oh, I'm sure he feels much better about that now. <laughs> have you have you given him any kind of like good sound advice about um, about the heat, or is he? Is, do you think he's got it? He's got it prepared and ready to go. I think he's pretty good because he's he's done some hot stuff in the past. Okay. Uh, and he he he's really experienced. If he gets it right, it would be really good for him. It'd be really nice. But I remember this guy telling me that if you just keep the sun off your skin, then you're mm. on. Then that would be really really good. So I I normally wear arm sleeves and like whack a buff over my head. And do you remember last year at Grand Union where yeah. when it got to ten o'clock in the morning, it just suddenly went so hot. Yeah. So I ended up wearing a buff and having a bonnet made out of a buff over my head and I look absolutely ridiculous but the sun was off me so I wasn't burning or anything yeah well it's, it's not it's it's hardly a fashion parade at those distances is it because <laughs> when you when you finish you've normally got yeah I mean that's the least of your worries what you look like I think and what you've got mushed in your pockets and stuff absolutely, absolutely. yeah well I hope I hope they I hope they go okay I mean obviously it, um, I think previously it's in a lot of centurion races and i don't want to i don't want to jinx um your mate running running the race but mm. you know it, it tends to be in temperatures like that that does it that does there's a lot of dnfs i think you kind of tend to start seeing them rack up um early afternoon yeah and, and it's yeah. the north, which is unreasonably brutal and it, it's not it's not the hilliest but it's just the hardest for some reason out of their races it just grinds you down so okay everyone <laughs> oh, good luck I, I, i'm looking forward to obviously when i get back off of holiday and we, we record the next show i'm finding out how it went and uh, what mm. works and what didn't work so yeah that'd, that'd be good to uh, touch base but i'll tell you another interesting uh, run that's kicked off which we mentioned earlier is dan lawson's attempt at or his second attempt at uh, ledgeog this time yeah so he's doing because he, he 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 wasn't able to finish it going from north to south was he mm, no, no he, he got one. close 
yeah so now he's doing south to north i mean that's you know i know we talk about long distances but that's just crazy long isn't it yeah but 90 80 to 90 miles a day he's got to do oh wow well that's so that's like eight or nine hundred miles over 10 days or something isn't it yeah i don't know what the record is actually i think it's um i think oh, he's going for it, isn't he? oh he is he, he is definitely going for it yeah and i think he's He's a lot. He sounds a lot more better prepared now, and he's got a, got an idea of what it's like to to, to yeah. do that event. And I think yeah, Dan tends to kind of, well, he certainly comes across like he uh, he'll he'll learn definitely learn from that first run. Um, it would be interesting because I think the uh, female course record went literally a week or two ago. Because I remember that chap on the Isle of Wight talking about it, saying that one of his friends had tried to take on the female course record. I think she had average something like 60 or 70 miles a day which is beyond yeah that's it's absolutely unbelievable isn't it it's just um i can't remember the name of the um of the lady that just broke the record um in fact i was going to try going to try and look it up but um it keeps coming up with old old results yeah um i think she got got a bit of help from hocker as well which is great i I was gonna say there you go. There you go. There we've got it. Carla Molinaro. That's the one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what did she do then? So she reached uh, John O'Groats in Scotland um, at 6.09 a.m. on the final day. She completed the 874 mile distance in 12 days, 30 minutes and 14 seconds. Well, that's just I doff my hat to that person. Well, that's just amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> ludicrous. I mean, yeah. I know how I felt after going around the Isle of Wight and, you know, to, to, mm. to increase that and then duplicate it 10 times over. No yeah. way. <laughs> it must <laughs> just get to a point where you're, where you're kind of feeling just as broken as you are day to day. And you just, you've just got to pick yourself up and start mm. moving your legs. Oh. Yeah. Uh, we, we've been chatting recently, haven't we, about, um, so Dan Lawson, who um, does rerun doesn't he? So I think yes. quite a lot about rerun. I've bought quite a few things off of rerun, um, and which is basically him collecting old running clothes, taking them, making sure they don't go to landfill, and then repurposing them. Is that right? Yeah, that is. That's that's entirely right. And I think what yeah, but you, you've hit the nail on the head. That's what they do. They effectively kind of you know want pre-loved clothes to become re-loved clothes. Effectively, that's what that's that's my motto with them. But they have like a number of um houses and companies around the uk where you can basically take all your your running kits which you don't want anymore and they they basically repurpose it and they do all sorts of like inventive things with the clothes i've I've seen where they've got like two or three t-shirts that have been just cut in random places and stitched together yeah that's right that's right yeah i've got i've actually got the website up now and they do that some of the stuff that they sell is shockingly cheap i mean like base layers for three pounds yeah, it's it's ludicrous. It's it's just absolutely crazy. I I've bought two, I think I bought two or three base layers from them. I bought two pairs of hockers, um, obviously before I I signed up with Hocker, and you they were great. To, they yeah, really good. Didn't you do Grand Union a pair of hockers from Rerun? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I ran. So I, obviously I didn't get through the entire race, but I ran a hundred miles in an old pair of um of Hocker Stinsons from from Rerun. So they were they were fantastic, and they're still going. They've still got miles in them. Amazing. I mean, like, I, I, I'm honestly can say that I'm not a massive shoe buyer, and I know some people really sort of go to town on it and will 
let go of their shoes after 300, 400, you know, miles. And that's never been my vibe, either because I've not got any money or because I like the shoes or, you know, I don't know, lots of different reasons, really. And I have recently sort of done a lot of miles in one pair of shoes and they've started to sort of like wear me down a little bit. Okay. What does a pair of shoes cost nowadays? Like upwards of a hundred pounds. But if you yeah. get else's old pair of shoes, save them from going to landfill or something just for for a little while, and you can get them for maybe ten pounds off a rerun. Then it's such a good idea. Yeah, it really is. It's it's a it's and it's. Do you know what's remarkable is how much clothing they get? Did you? I know. Um, I don't know if you saw a photo I took of the national running show. When Jason and I went up there and um, obviously rerun had a stall and it was it was such a contrast between the different stalls that they had up there because they had stalls that were giving away T-shirts for free. Just more and more T-shirts like sign yeah. up to our races and we'll give yeah. you two free T-shirts. Yeah. Oh. And then you had rerun who just sat there going like, you know, just they basically bought a load of the clothes that they had been donated there. And it, and it just looked like a mountain of clothing they had in the stall. Mm. And they just sat there, you know, trying to fight the opposite, the opposite fight. You know, they. They don't want this stuff to come out. And uh, yeah. I mean, I think like Dan always says, you know, if, if you need a, a good bit of kit, buy it. But like, you know, these things can last a lot longer because yeah. obviously everyone needs kit. Like you're saying your shoes are starting to starting to actually become a problem now. So, you know, I don't think it's the buying the clothes necessarily entirely that that's the issue. But it's it's basically making sure you you, you use them and then obviously mm-hmm. give them away or, or they go to places that keeps them out of landfill is, is yeah. super important. Absolutely. I mean, here you can get a pair of like ASICs, good condition for 11, for 11 and a half, size 11 and a half, for 13 quid. I mean, that's a quarter of the price at least that they, they could be, isn't it? So, yeah. But there's, that's, that's... If, if people are, if, if shoes look good, they might not necessarily be good on the foot, but someone can probably do something with those, I reckon. Yeah. I mean, they used to get given out like at every race, didn't? And I got to the point where I, I actually don't buy t-shirts or any running kit for like my top anymore because I've yeah. got base layer and I've also got a hell of a lot of race t-shirts that I'm pretty sure will probably last me the rest of my life as long as I don't get too fat. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, I've got a got a wardrobe full of them, and, and I've taken a lot of my stuff to rerun because I, you know, rather than throwing it in the bin, I'd rather them use it. Yeah. But, um, I mean, you know what I'm like with, with my stuff. Everyone teases me because I'm always in, in hocker gear. But that's because, you know, if you're given the stuff, just you know, use it. And, and yeah. you know, I'll, I'll just I'll just reuse it for as long as as long as I possibly can until it's there's nothing sure. left. But um, sure. bless him, Dan. I think Dan's a real a real troop and a real, you know, he, he's not just kind of talking the fight. He's actually out there doing the lo, the lo jog uh, record attempt in yeah. secondhand clothing entirely. He's like, doing there's nothing. Entirely. Yeah. Yeah, that's really yeah. Cool. yeah, there's nothing new that he's got that he's using. I think so. He's he's incredible. And you know, I hear I hear stories of Dan as well. He does. I think he forages as well when he's gone out when he goes out with some long runs. So it's perfect time of year then if he um, if he can get up to the um, having a good go at the blackberries and things like that. But yeah, nice, wouldn't they? <laughs> yeah, it'd be fantastic. Do you know what's really strange about his attempt is when he when he last tried um, the joggle. Mm. uh it, he got close to coming down to where we were nearly around on holiday 
Um, and I was considering driving up in the evenings, going joining for some miles, but he mm. he kind of stopped just short of that, um, about a day or day and a half away from the end. But wow. we're going away on a holiday tomorrow near Dorchester, and it's about an hour's drive from where Dan will be passing through on the Friday, I think, or, or sorry, wow. tomorrow or the day after. So we may there may be a chance for it. I don't, I don't know. Probably it probably won't be able to happen, but it would be nice to go and join him. Um, mm. But if anybody's out there and wants to go and have a look, I think if you just Google rerun clothing or or dan lawson on uh, social media you'll see some details about how you can track him and i think he always welcomes people to join him for some miles as well yeah well that would be good i'm a bit too busy this uh, at the moment but you know yeah yeah you're gonna be you're gonna be hectic, so. people be chomping at the bits to go and do some miles with him mm, for sure well listen um I wish you all the best with it, and uh, obviously wish wish your mate best of luck. I think I know who the mate is, but um, yeah, we can we, we can chat about how it kind of all went um, when I get back and stuff. But enjoy your time, enjoy your few weeks. Um, obviously I won't see you for a, for about ten days or so, but I'll be running, you'll be running, and um, yeah. have a great holiday. Yeah, sorry, I said have a great holiday. Thank you so much. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Uh, and uh, yeah, thanks again, Dave, for doing these. And oh, by the way, just um, just everyone knows the interview that's coming up is with uh, Portsmouth ultra running legend uh, Russ Bestley. Um, and you know Russ as well, don't you, Dave? I do. Do you know what? Um, one of the first ultras that I ever did, Russ was at, I think it might have been Trail Walker, and there was these guys from Portsmouth. And he was one of my kind of like ultra inspirations with um in, in Portsmouth you know because he, he they had like done more and gone further than I could ever imagine so I'm yeah. really looking forward to this one because he is a bit of a bloody legend isn't he yeah so. it was it was a cracking interview it was it was really interesting and he's uh, Russell's just such an interesting guy and he's what I like about him he's very kind and he's willing to share information I've, I've attended one of the talks that he's done on ultra running to yeah to you know give to people who were interested in trying the distance and yeah, he's just a lovely, just a lovely all-round guy, and yeah, spoke spoke really well about his about his experiences. Oh, and by the way, um, you'll I did get to ask him the question about which music's better, metal or punk. <laughs> um, you'll hear the answer when you listen to the show. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, but obviously, yeah, metal's much better than punk, isn't it? So, well, we'll see. We'll see what he, we'll see what he says. He might have a few choice words. <laughs> all right, Dave. Listen, take right. care, mate. Uh, regards to Heather, and we'll yeah catch up with you soon. Thank you, Bye. All the best. Bye. Hey, hello, Russ. Welcome hello. to the Portsmouth Running Podcast. Uh, how have you been keeping during these uh, during these strange months of lockdown? It's been okay. It's been uh, stressful at times, and uh, I went into the lockdown injured. I was uh, I had a lot of problems through last year and into the start of this year, um, and. Then got a yeah, I managed to pull a couple of muscles and was due for some treatment just as the day of the lockdown. So my treatment was cancelled, so I went into that lockdown. Then we were in isolation for a while because my wife and my daughter were ill. Um, so it's taken a little while to come back out of that. It's been it's been strange, it's been strange, an awful lot of work to do because uh, mm. my work is my job's carried on really. Okay. Have you, have, you, have you found it quite difficult working from home uh, and stuff? Or has it been, has it been I, okay? I work from home a lot of the time anyway, so uh, that's okay. been okay. But working from home with other people in the house is not something that I'm used to. So uh, having yeah. to juggle rooms and uh, and timelines and uh, and schedules for work has been a bit more more distracting than normal. Yeah, there's, I think there's lots of that going on. It's, it's come up come up as a, as, as topics and on a lot of um, the interviews I've done with guests. And uh, yeah, certainly working from home and trying to juggle which room you're working from. I mean, I've done... 
I think I've done a couple of conference calls from the bathroom, which is a bit odd, but hey, yep. you, you do what you've got to do. <laughs> um, listen, Russ, I think a good a, a good place to start, and I've never asked you this before, but do you do you prefer Russell or, or Russ? Uh, Russ normally is my friends, yeah. Um, Russell always reminds me of my mum. My mum used to, whenever I was in, I was in trouble, my mum would call me Russell, so, uh, <laughs> so I try and avoid it. Okay, we'll, we'll keep it to Russell, and you're certainly not in trouble here, Russ. You're doing us a favour by coming on, and it's great to great to finally get you on. But you're, you're also, I think you're also known as well as as Big Russ in Pompey. Yeah, yeah, it's Big Russ and Little Russ because it's Russ Tullet that uh, that runs with Pompey Joggers and uh, and it's part of the ultra scene down here. So we uh, we've we've run together for many years. So we get called Big Russ and Little Russ. I'm I happen to be six foot two, and he's about four foot nothing. So yeah, um, so we uh, we contrast each other. Perfect, perfect. Yeah, I think um, I've uh, obviously had uh, Sandra Tallett on the on the show before, and I would love to get uh, to get little Russ on the show as well at some point in the future, which would be fantastic. But uh, I thought like maybe you could tell the listeners a little bit about about who you are, like maybe start with your full name and and maybe some some non running related description or sentence or two about about you, maybe some fun facts that people don't know. So uh, fun facts. Okay, my name's uh, Russell. Russ or Russell Bestley. Uh, I'm 57, uh, so getting on a bit, been running a long time, uh, which we're going to talk about. Um, and I'm a university researcher in London, so I'm based at a college in uh, in London. And my key interest is uh, is popular culture. Actually, it's a lot of it's a lot of stuff about punk rock. So I, I write books, I do exhibitions, I manage journals. Uh, I supervise PhD students doing stuff around uh, around music, music history, popular culture, and yep. as I say, particularly punk rock is uh, is one of my loves of my life. So uh, that's that's pretty much my job. So I work from home a lot and uh, and do a lot of a lot of writing. Okay, fantastic. Um, now this podcast is actually I've got to admit it's been a kind of uh, small labour of love, um, like you know, putting the show together and kind of finding doing a bit of research on you and obviously um thank you for all the information you sent about your your running history it was it was really interesting um but you know Google, I, I do a bit of googling and a bit of research and, and i found out so much about you and kind of like the work you do um online and you're you're cited in in so many different places and links and there's yeah. articles that you've done and things you've been involved in setting up and stuff and it's been it's been quite fascinating but um I, you completed your your phd and thesis i think in 2008 and yeah you you entitled your your thesis project um, Hitsville UK punk rock and graphic design in the yeah. faraway towns. <laughs> yeah, I, I, um, it's a long story, but uh, I, I I left school and went to college uh, in Portsmouth. I moved from I grew up in Tunbridge Wells in Kent, and then I moved down to Portsmouth to uh, to go to college. Got a uh, a last minute place on an engineering degree at uh, Portsmouth uh, Polytechnic, as it was then. Um, got thrown out in the first term and ended up staying in Portsmouth and roadieing for bands and things, working with uh, all sorts of the great and the good, uh, and uh, and then dossed around in Portsmouth for many years. Ended up working at Haven't Hypermarket, driving a forklift truck. Uh, when I got made redundant at the late of the late eighties, um, I went back to college. So I went to art college okay. uh, as a mature student, and then found I'm quite good at it. So I'm uh, I became a graphic designer and a graphic design lecturer. Uh, did a PhD and ended up as uh, as a senior, basically a professor in London uh, who deals with graphic design and popular culture. So my life kind of travels down different routes. I've got the running part of me, I've got the graphic design part of me, and I've got the the punk part of me. And they're three sort of strands that are equally significant. Mm, three three strong strong and very interesting threads there as well because I've seen a lot of your 
your posts obviously on through social media and things that you've done like maybe some of the some of the work the graphic the graphics and artwork you've been involved yeah. in with some of the music and yeah it's, fa- it's fascinating stuff you know i know nothing about it myself although i have been told by a very very good source russ that um that metal music is much better than punk music is, that, is this <laughs> I thought, true i thought that might come up no obviously <laughs> wrong um, i'm the professor here and i'm sure the other source has not got the credentials that i have uh, um, that's true so i yeah I've got I've got uh, I've got study on my side and age. <laughs> Brilliant. I, I, I was kind of almost forced into 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 asking you that, but I, I knew what the answer was going to be anyway. And, and yeah, you're right. <laughs> I trust you, Russ. I trust you. Um, I, I don't know much about um, punk music myself, but I there is one artist I listen to who I think used to, used to have a punk band, and he, I think he's a local um well local to the south uh, musician as well. His name's Frank Turner. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think he, he used to play a lot of punk, but his, his recent stuff I've kind of got into now, which is which is not obviously not punk music. But, yeah, um, that's the only kind of uh, tie in I have to punk at all. But, yeah, very interesting yeah. stuff. I mean, it's uh, yeah, it looks like you're, you're really involved in it. And um, like I said, you came up in so many um, online places. I'd recommend, you know, if anybody wants to find out more, go and go and Google your name because there's plenty of stuff out there. Um, so, Russ, how's your week been um, going? Like, uh, or last couple of weeks or so, have you had um, any uh, much running or any sessions that you've done over the past um, couple of weeks? It's been going okay. I think, as I say, the lockdowns knocked things to one side for a bit, and I had uh, um, a couple of months where I was kind of struggling with injury uh, and not not able to get treatment, which was uh, which was a real pain. And then the uh, the physios opened up again a month or so ago, a few weeks ago. Um, yeah. So I was able to go and get some treatment and that helped. And I'd already started sort of going back into regular running with uh, with a mate, Martin Bacon, who's one of the, uh, uh, the, the, the solid, long-standing ultra runners in Portsmouth uh, area, which I'm sure will come up again in the conversation. Uh, yeah. So uh, so I started running with Martin again just every day, popping out in the morning and just doing 10K in the morning uh, and going out on the weekend and probably doing a couple of hour run on, on the weekend on trails. Uh, okay. just to sort of ease back into it so yeah that's been that's been going okay that's cool that's that's really good because i know yeah we've spoken a couple of times over the last kind of yeah, 18 months two years you know obviously race related stuff and i remember you had a you had, you had an issue with your eyes as well at some point and um yeah this yeah, you get you get old and things fall off uh i think last year the big problem that i had uh weirdly was after 40 odd years of competitive running um, I had a big gap where I had some injuries uh, and I was having some some blood level problems and all sorts of things, which is still kind of going on. But we'll we'll come to that. Um, yeah. And then I had to go. I, I was diagnosed. I, had, I was losing my sight basically. My my eyes would get away. All sorts of problems. Wow. Um, and I went to get checked out, and uh, and they said, well, you've got cataracts, and one's really bad, and the other one's getting bad. Uh, so they booked me in for eye surgery and I had to get one done at a time. And each one leads to sort of eight to 12 weeks or three months off after okay. you can't exercise at all. Um, so I had one eye done. Then I came, then I did the Brighton Marathon. This is a year and a half ago. Okay. Then I got the second eye done. And then coming back from that, I just picked up every injury going. It just seems it was a nightmare. And the, the physio said to me, well, not running's not good for you. Uh, you've been running for 45 years. And uh, if you're going to stop for three months or six months, then it's going to cause you problems, which is what it's done. So um, so it's, I'm trying to sort of take it slowly, building back into it. Yeah. Wow. Does um, out of out of interest, and this may be a, like a strange question, and I might be completely off off topic here, but um, 
the running's not had anything to do with with the issues had with the eyes at all. It was no, no, it hasn't. Okay. Where I started noticing it was was when I was running. To be honest, I, I, obviously we'll, we'll talk about it later. But I've done okay. a lot of ultra running, yeah. and um, when I was running at night, I was getting more and more problems um, okay. with uh, with glare from the head torch, uh, with reflection. Um, with things being blurred. Uh, so I was going to races where we were running into twilight and I was just tripping over all the time because I couldn't see the ground properly. Um, so I got some glasses. I ended up getting some reactor light glasses, which are like basically sunglasses that, uh, that go clear and then go dark in, in light. Okay. Uh, and you get some really funny looks when you turn up at a checkpoint with sunglasses on in the middle of the night. But, uh, but it was the only <laughs> way that I could see um with it i saw a head torch and sunglasses if you, you know really which was the only way i could cope with it so um so i knew something was going wrong uh that i was having problems but it really sort of came to light when i saw the optician and they said well you know you're really having problems here the, you, know, you you're driving a car and it looks like a, you're looking through a kaleidoscope when, the, when the, the cars with headlights are coming the other way you think there's a problem there yeah. Um, wow. So it's something that has had to be done, but it's, yeah, it comes to all of us. It just doesn't normally come to us until we're a little bit older than I am. Yeah. Okay. Well, interesting. Um, yeah, a lot to deal with. But I hope I hope 2021 um, has a, has a lot more kind of like injury and uh, and and clear health free miles ahead for you. So yeah, yeah, I hope, yeah. I hope you guys are okay. Brilliant. And also, can't wait to get a run in with you as well because we've been we've been uh, talking about having a run at some point. Um, we have for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've got to got to get it done at some point. But other than running, um, have you been you know doing anything else, keeping busy during lockdown apart from work and running? Any any um, other new skills or hobbies developed at home? No, it's, it's the work's gone crazy. Uh, the work has just been really really busy. I, I'm so well, in some ways I'm so envious of the people who said, well, I've been furloughed or I've just been learning new skills, you know, doing some cookery or getting out in the garden. Yeah, and uh, and my work's just gone through the roof. Obviously, teaching that side of it has moved to uh, online, which t- everything takes three times as long as as it does when you do it in 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 person. It and does, you can't just pop yeah. into an office and see someone and say, "Oh, could you sort this piece of finance out or something?" Everything it becomes a protracted discussion, uh, mm. and uh, through Microsoft Teams or something. So everything just seems to take so much longer. And but conversely, a lot of the, the people I work with that are writers. Are getting work done more quickly because rather rather than three months to make some changes to an article they're doing it in a week and sending it back to me so i'm the editing work that i'm doing is uh, seems to have really taken off yeah, so I, uh, yeah that's just been busy yeah I, I found the whole the whole thing fascinating based based on what you just said because there are there are jobs that require a lot of interaction in between doing bits of work which is where you know you find the having to have a webex meeting or a microsoft teams meeting really pads up the time so much yeah. Um, whereas people that have had tasks to do, maybe like you said, writers who spend large chunks of their time wanting that that kind of time on their own, it's maybe it been a bit better. So, yeah, it's been uh, it's quite fashion, uh, fascinating, kind of socially how the how it kind of interacts with everyone's jobs and lives and stuff. So. It is. Yeah. 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 Cool. Well, listen. Um, to get back to the running and, and stuff, and maybe maybe start start with the uh, the story and, and back to where things started for you, Russ. Um, we're gonna we're gonna jump in a little kind of virtual time machine here and go back yeah. 45 years, which is yeah. <laughs> all the way back to 1975. I think I did the maths right. 1975. Yeah. Ama- absolutely amazing. That's that's incredible. Does that actually sound uh, like like a like a long way back? It, yeah, it does. Yeah, and I think yeah. it, it makes me feel very old. But I think. Um, yeah, it does. It's one of the interesting things. And there's a number of things that I talked when I when I emailed you, we had, a, had some discussions prior to this uh, mm. that I thought, well, it will be interesting to talk about. And one of them is um, 
it's longevity, really. I think one of the things that yeah, will come up in the conversations we go through, I think, is um, yeah. Yeah, how do I maintain a, you don't want to call it a running career, but how do I keep fit and keep running for yeah. a long period of time? So there's so many old adages that um, when I used to coach marathons, it would be well, people reach their peak in their first seven years of running. So they might start running when they're 20 or they might start running when they're 40. But within mm. seven years is when they kind of reach their peak and then start tailing off. Well, what happens if you're going to have a career running career or running lifestyle lifetime that's going to run over 40 or 50 years? Does that mean you've got seven years that are good and 43 years that are going to be bad? Um, how yeah. do you manage that over that kind of uh, that, that kind of length of time? And it doesn't mean that I'm, I'm not still setting PBs the way that I was 20 or 30 years ago, but you can still uh, maintain fitness and do reasonably well. Uh, and with the age group bands and those kind of things that can that can help. So really, how do you sort of maintain uh, running and the dedication to it? I suppose it's not the one on the one hand avoiding injury and and maintaining fitness uh, or competitiveness, but also the dedication. Okay, it's, you're going to have changes in your life. You're going to have kids, or you're going to change jobs, or move, mm. or all those kind of things. How do you maintain some kind of uh, uh, aspiration to still want to get out there and uh, and run over that time? Yeah, it's a diff it's a difficult thing to to balance and and get right, you know, with all those areas in your life that kind of sprout up and stuff. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting finding out um, what the magic what the magic recipe is, right? So hopefully that'll uh, that'll come in some in some nuggets of information during the interview. Yeah. But, um, I, I you know I didn't want to really make you um you know feel like 45 years is a long time because obviously you know like you say we can we can continue running well well into life these days and um like you say hoping that you can kind of give us some nuggets of information about that but uh, I wanted to make um, uh, make you aware that the the year you started running uh, was the same year the Vietnam War ended <laughs> <laughs> and and also just out of interest uh, the year you started running as well Bruce Springsteen uh, and this is kind of kind of running related released his album Born to Run so how's oh, that there we are there's a, there's, that's a perfect uh, yeah, analogy I think yeah yeah, I was I was kind of inspired as a as a schoolboy uh, in Tunbridge Wells, as I say, where I grew up, um, by the the loneliness of the long distance runner. That book was something that was kind of chimed with me, and uh, and mm -hmm. I kind of quite like the romance of it. Uh, my wife's going to take the piss out of me constantly now if I because I said the word romance because I'm the least <laughs> romantic person she's ever met. Um, but uh, I've always liked that that idea of uh, of going out and running and being in the countryside and cross country running and that kind of thing. So I started when I was at school. I was I was what 14, 13, 14. So 1975, I was 13. Okay. So uh, I went to a, a, a grammar school in Kent, Skinner School. Uh, in Tunbridge Wells and uh, it just by chance I suppose uh, by luck by chance I uh, went to a school that uh, was a boys school and one of the teachers there who uh, was the religious studies teacher um, he was had been one of the early four minute milers um, just after Bannister and co uh, and was a had been a you know a, a, an outstanding athlete as a youth okay. and he was coaching a running team so I joined the uh, this running group uh, first cross country running, um, and I'm not, and I won't say that I was particularly good. I was in the B team at school, and in fact, was the A team at school did make up the majority of the Kent County team, and several of them became international athletes. But they were very good, um, and uh, and I managed to scrape into the B team and uh, and okay. run with this group of uh, of outstanding runners. Fantastic. Um, 
which was great. And it, as a school kid, it was it was great to be in that situation that you kind of you find an enthusiasm for something. You're going out running in the mud, um, and uh, and you've got some people that you kind of aspire to try and catch because they're pretty good. Um, mm-hmm. And it's and it's quite a good uh, feeling to be part of that team. So we would go and do things like the university relays. We were sort of 15 year old kids that would go and do the university relays against the 21, 22 year old university teams, and we'd win prizes. Uh, because we were pretty good um those kind of things so we were we were you know pretty good in that class and and um as i say i wasn't one of the outstanding runners there were some people that were far better than i am Mm. um and that link that linked in then with tunbridge ac was the uh, was the local club um that was about five miles away from tunbridge wells and uh, and obviously tunbridge ac um but you know led on to people like kelly holmes was uh, was like was a later uh, athlete that came out of tunbridge uh, but oh, there was right. there were quite a number of uh, of um, very very good uh, athletes, multidisciplinary athletes that uh, who came out of Tunbridge uh, have done over the years. It's, it's one of the, it's one of the clubs that's that's up there as uh, producing very very good athletes. So linked in with that with the school. So the so the school teacher kind of encouraged us. We it was one of those schools where um, uh, as a as a boys grammar school they'd kind of identify what people were good at. We'd have we'd have people that made it to the the national cricket team or national golf team or bowling team or whatever um, okay. and when you did athletics on a on a wednesday afternoon you get dragged out and you'd be able to just go and do do this national standards i don't know if you don't know if you've done any of this in in, in your life we no, still do it there'd be a national standard you get a, a grade sort of one two or three um a different level for each event so we all had to do all the events so you've got these 14 year old 15 year old kids saying okay you've got to do the long jump today you've got to do the high jump or the pole vault, or the hammer throw, or the discus, wow. to try and get as a grade one or two standard. So everybody's throwing, you know, real javelins and hammers and things around. Um, you know, none of this sort of soft sponge stuff that they do now, and uh, and bean bags and things. This was the real stuff. Here's mm. a proper shot put or a proper discus. You've got to go out there and throw that thing 40 meters or something. So um, and that's going to be one of my. That's going to be one of my questions, Russ. Was sorry to interrupt. Was um, you know the experience of running when you were um in a club and, and in school t- to that level like how how does it how it must differ to all kind of like the the rules and the health and safety that, that you get now if you join a club or go running in school well I've, I've i've seen people get hit by javelins and things i mean it was, it was oh. pretty brutal at times uh, and when it when you don't really don't know what you're doing and you've got to try and spin around in a circle with a you know, a 16 pound ball on the end of a chain then it can be quite dangerous um True. or a pole vault um, it can be quite lethal. But yeah, so it was pre that health and safety. There's some other things that, I'll, as I say, I'll probably come back to when we come back into the ultra running. But other things that I loved about it, it was it was the time of athletics when uh, the people we aspired to to be were just coming into the scene then was people like Steve Over and Seb Coe. Um, and this is prior to Steve Cran. It was before his generation. It was that kind of slightly or Brendan Foster, I suppose, uh, David Bedford, those people. Okay. Uh, were the people that we were the, were the, the kind of senior people on the in, in the in the British team, um, and uh, and we do events, we do competitions where those people will be on the same track as us. You know, those people will be doing the same yeah the same events, the same competitions as us, which was extraordinary. Go and stand on Brighton track, or to compete on Brighton track, and see Steve Ovid run past, and the, the wow. pace that he ran it was just unbelievable. Amazing, um, so inspiring. So, 
It is, and 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 I used to. Um, I mean, we I'll, we'll come on to the race hawking, but uh, uh, you know, so I train at Crystal Palace or at uh, Aldershot, a number of different uh, places in the south, alongside those uh, those people. Um, but the other thing was kind of that was odd about it. I, I got some success as a race walker, which um, as I say, we'll come on to. Um, is that uh, everything was strictly amateur. Uh, and so we, on the one hand, there wasn't the health and safety and, and there was this push to say, well, all, all these kids at my school, you have to do all these events and we'll find out what you're good at. And then you, when you find out this lanky kid can jump, then he becomes the high jumper or whatever it might be. <laughs> there's, a, there's a chance to try things out. Yeah, but also um, uh, it was strictly amateur. So when we started doing competitions, we weren't allowed to win prize or we had to declare our prizes at the end of the year. So you had to, if you could under the three A's rules, as they were in the 1970s, if you won a, a you know a, a, a sweatshirt for in a race, uh, you had to declare it at the end of the year. So you weren't so you had to declare what your kind of uh, you weren't having an unfair income. Uh, oh, okay. You weren't yeah you weren't you weren't winning any there was no prize money or anything. Um, uh, so even even things that you won that were gifts if you like um, had to be uh, had to be declared. It's quite a strict very strict amateur um, model. Yeah, sounds it. And there were rules that, that, you know, some things that I find quite comical nowadays is uh, that I look at some of the sport nowadays that I think I'm pretty sure any event under a marathon, there were, there, you weren't allowed water stations. So really? uh, it could be baking hot and it would be a half marathon, but um, but there would be no water stations because the three A's rules were no water stations or anything, anything less than 26 miles. Um, and uh, so it's your local 10Ks and those kind of things. There'd be no, there'd be no water no gels nothing like that there'd be no, none of that kind of support uh, network that we that we kind of expect nowadays yeah i was gonna say r- runners out there who are listening to this see how spoiled we all are now. <laughs> we, are, we are it's, it's, it's very very different it was a yeah, much, much want, more rudimentary process then yeah people want chocolates and, and bloody jelly babies and everything <laughs> these days and they're not happy if there's a certain amount of gels particular particular brands of gels they want and they're uh, yeah, yeah. upset <laughs> Yeah. Listen, Russ. I wanted to ask you. So, so in in Tom, in the Tunbridge Athletics Club, how on earth did you get the opportunity to try and and end up uh, run or race walking uh, as an event? How, how did you get the chance to 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 try that? Well, I think um, uh, again, it's this kind of school and club thing. Um, there was a, 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 a boy at my school who was two years older than me who made it into the British team as a race walker. Um, uh, interestingly, is another aside on this that I can sort of ramble for ages. He went to Oxford. He went to Oxford University, and yep. he discovered that he couldn't get an Oxford Blue as a race walker. They, they didn't count. They didn't count that event because uh, yep. the Oxford Blue is where you get an award, basically, as uh, for achievement in your sport. So he so he uh, said, well, I could get it in rowing. Uh, he could be a rower and do it for, do it for rowing, but he couldn't do it for race walking. But no, he he just sort of led the way. Um, and so and so we had a coach who uh, was. Uh, very good again it's different different to the running coach at the club we had a walking coach uh who had uh, achieved he'd got a number of people through to the county team and the southern counties team and the british team and so um again i just tried the event my brother tried it first my brother was a was a, a twin brother darren who okay. uh was a thrower he was a very good uh, county level shot putter and discus thrower and he tried race walking and he did OK. Um, and I thought, well, I'll have a go at that then. And it turned out that I had a natural talent for it. I was quite good. So I uh, got pushed over to this coach and this coach sort of took me on alongside a number of other people. And I think out of our club, we ended up with four of us, I think, went into the British team. 
Um, I became captain of the Kent County team and won the Southern Counties Championships and uh, I went to the National Championships and that kind of thing. So, um, and then in the British, I ended up in the British team and I sort of competed against a number of other countries as a walker. Um, it's, a, it's a very particular event. It's, it's a very technical event. Yeah. And uh, I know it's a, you know, it can be a comic event in some ways, but it's a very technical event and it involves strength and stamina and flexibility, actually. There's a, there's a certain level of almost gymnastic-like uh, uh, activity in, in the training. Um, yeah. But I could, I could walk a six-minute mile. Like I, you know, I, I walked 3K in just over 12 minutes, 5K in around 22 minutes. That's 10, amazing. 45 minutes and 10 miles in 73 minutes. So I could walk around about 135 for a half marathon. Wow. Um, there's, so, nothing, there's nothing comical about walking a six-minute mile, right? Absolutely <laughs> <No>. not. <laughs> so it was, it was quite, it was quite a fact, it was interesting. I, I, my, I had a walking coach and a running coach, and they didn't really see eye to eye. And my running coach said to me, which was very prescient at the time, he said, look, Russ, you can run forever, but you're never going to be fast. Um, and the walking coach said, you should just be walking. You shouldn't be running. Um, 90% of my training was running. I, I, I loved running. Mm-hmm. So I just ran all the time and I would do a little bit of walking uh, and and do some of the technical stuff. And I was I was I, my achievements was a walker. But my my passion, I suppose, was for running. Uh, but the two coaches wouldn't see eye to eye and they'd be in competition with each other because I'd be asked to go and do compete for a running team uh, one week. And then uh. there'd be a walking event at the same time. In the, in the end, I kind of my school suffered, really, because uh, it got to the point I was I was competing. I was training eight nine times a week and i was competing probably twice a week traveling uh so by the time i got to the end of my school days i was spending more time on the road and going yeah literally on the road either traveling to events or taking part in events than i was at school okay. um yeah but you know it, it was something that worked out for me so i you know, i was a serious athlete for uh, for two or three years and i got injured out uh but 1981 so uh, I, I tore a hip flexor and uh, they put me out of walking for probably about eight months. And it was just it was too hard to get back. It was it really? was I'd, I'd come from elite level and it at that age and um, with I didn't I guess I didn't have the strength of mind to, to spend several years working through it to to get back to that level. It was something yeah. I was I was a bit uh, uh, impetuous, I guess, that uh, I've come from, you know, national championships you know, and that kind of thing, uh, and international to now I'm struggling to, you know, to compete on uh, in a local race. I, it, I could probably could have spent a couple of years getting back up there, but it wasn't there. So, uh, so I had let the walking go and uh, and switched back over to, to, to just running. Okay, so but you um, I, I guess you you it sounded like you had a really really long break uh, long break from from like competing. So any so any running or or like the the competitive competitive level that you were used to, um, what didn't happen for about nineteen years? I think I think you said. No, so it was about ten years. I think I think about I went. Um, yeah, so I went uh, from uh, I was walking. I was started running seventy five. I was walking through to about nineteen eighty one, uh, and then I carried on doing some competitions through sort of probably nineteen eighty three, eighty four, and then I took about six years where I didn't race and just kept fit a little bit and just jogged and just, um, you yeah, just, I, I did other things really. Okay. Um, and, uh, which were changes in, in life, in career and, uh, uh, and interests, but just, you know, did some jogging. And then in the early nineties, 
uh, sort of 1989-1990. Uh, about the same time I got made redundant, actually, and I went back to uh, back to college. I started up running again. Uh, okay. I thought, well, um, let's see if I can do the Great South Run. Let's see if I can sort of uh, work towards a marathon. Okay. Yes, because in the 90s, you decided um, you train and run the London Marathon, which I think was going to be your first marathon. Yeah, it was my first marathon. I, yep. I, I didn't get the chance when I was younger. When I, when I was uh, running with this team at school, um, the first London Marathon, which was 1981, I think, uh, I was in the sixth form at school, and mm-hmm. I can't remember if it was 80 or 81. Uh, we said we wanted to do it, but we weren't old enough. It must, it must be 1980. Um, and uh, And so... A group of us just got together and uh, went out on the Sunday. Um, the school, the school were very good actually. They used to let, let us use the gym at weekends. They just leave the gym open at weekends, and we just go and get changed in there and go out for a run. So okay. we decided to go out and run 26.2 miles anyway. Um, a group of 17-year-olds, uh, and uh, uh, so we did that on the Sunday, which nearly killed us. And um, and our coach was absolutely furious because we had a competition. <laughs> we had a competition three days later. Oh, man. Uh, and he was he hit the roof when he found out that we've just decided because it was the day of London Marathon, we're going to go and run run 26 miles anyway, because we're not allowed to do the marathon itself because uh, we weren't old enough. So. Uh, so, yeah, that caused us a bit of consternation. So, yeah, I had I'd run the distance, uh, but uh, decided in the 90s well, I was uh, coming back to yeah, coming back to competing. I, I was re- doing reasonably well um, and decided I'd, uh, I'd work towards the London Marathon. So my marathon debut official was 1996. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, I mean, you ran some really good times uh, in the nineties as well. So you 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 hit a thirty-five minute for your ten k time yeah. and one seventeen for a half marathon, which is which yeah. is very rapid. That's that's really quick. Yeah. Yeah. I think I that the I think my um, my approach was um, okay. So something some other people will be familiar with. I think I'd, I'd run I think ten k's. I'd run a few ten k's, and I got down to the point that I could I could relatively comfortably run sub six minute miling for 10k okay. um so uh please tell me you weren't walking there. sorry please tell me you weren't walking no i wasn't walking was... this time i was running Good. this time um, <laughs> that although, was actually although, although it's always been a contention of mine yeah i always said in back in 1980 if i ever start running slower than i'm than i walk then i'm going to give up but uh, yeah. but when you when you're walking 5k in 22 minutes, it's it's gets it gets tougher yeah. when you get to the point when you get older and you think actually 22 minutes isn't a bad 5k time. Sure, um, for sure. Or a 135 half marathon. Actually, that's not bad. Um, so it's kind of you know I'm on the edge now of uh, of hitting the walking times. But yeah. um, so no, I I I was doing these 10k's and I was I was hitting sort of 37 minutes, 37, 38 minutes, and I managed to get that down to 35. Um, and thought, well, okay, now I can extend that further and run 10 miles in under an hour, which I did. And then you can run half marathon in under 118, which I did. Um, doesn't work beyond then. I've just, I discovered, you know, you can, you can do your sub six minute milings up to up to a half marathon, but you can't do it for a marathon. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, nor you, yeah, many people can do it for a marathon, but it's, uh, but it's not something that is sort of, you know, there's it's a massive leap. Each one of those steps from 5K to 10K to 10 miles to half marathon is only 5K. So basically, you're 5K plus 5K plus 5K plus 5K plus 5K. So really, if you've got a pace that you can run at and you can run 5K, it's a case of in building your endurance and your lactate threshold to get to the point that you can get to the next uh, the next uh, level, uh, which yeah. is to run further, run that, that further distance and, and maintain the pace. So I kind of did that up to half marathon. Wow, amazing. Um, went through to the marathon. London Marathon 1996 was extremely hot. So I had all sorts of problems. 
the week before the race, I had a, had a major problem. I'd, um, uh, I, I think it was about three weeks before the race, I'd been training. I went to my brother's house in London, in Ealing, uh, went out for a run, because uh, it was about three or four weeks before the marathon, and uh, came back to his house feeling not great, um, sat down, um, said, thought, uh, later on, I thought, well, I, I, I need to go to the loo. So I went, went, to, went to the loo. Uh, woke up in hospital. Um, I basically blacked out in the in the loo and mm-hmm. smacked my head on the wall uh, and on the sink and uh, and they thought I'd had a fit and yeah. uh, took me to hospital. Um, so luckily at the hospital they did a, a, an ECG and just by chance they did an EEG. So they did these uh, these checks on my on my heart yeah. and they discovered a problem. Uh, they discovered there was an electrical signal block in my heart. Um, and it was partly, it really kind of came to the fore because I was, I've, I've been running, I've been quite fit, well, very fit at that point. Um, and uh, my heart rate was very low. My heart rate, resting heart rate was probably about 36, I think, at that point. Okay, um, yeah. And if your heart rate's 36 and you miss a couple of beats, then that can be five seconds between heartbeats and your blood pressure drops and you black out. So yeah, I, um, I think you, you hear you hear that story quite commonly, um, especially um, I think uh, people with with problems like that going to the toilet because I think your your blood pressure drops anyway or your yeah yeah. So you, I've I've heard of, I've had friends actually have had similar similar a lot, issues. A lot of distance runners get it anyway. A lot of distance runners have mm. have low heart rates and low heart rates is a bit like a low revving engine on a car. Um, if you're uh, if you're sitting in your car and your car's idling, or if you take your car to the garage and your car's idling, you turn that screw on the on the carburetor. That slows the engine down and slows the engine down it's going to start to the point that it's going to start jumping it's yeah. going to start sort of uh, misfiring because it's it, it's not quite happy uh, mm. idling at that point well when your heart rate is resting at 60 or 70 which is kind of normal for the population then often you don't notice those things a lot of runners their heart rate comes down because their heart becomes more efficient it pumps more blood um, and uh, the heart becomes stronger so their heart rate comes down to be able to pump their blood around their body and, uh, and maintain their, their blood pressure. But uh, it starts to show up these, if you've got a, 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 you know, a, an underlying problem, uh, then it will start to show up. Um, mm-hmm. So that was the problem that I found that they discovered is that I had a, this signal block in my heart. Okay. So I actually saw those, the cardiac consultant um, the day bef- the two days before the marathon. I saw him on the Friday. Wow. And, uh, and this is 1996 in my debut marathon. And he, he said, well, so you've been training hard and I said yeah and he went through these checks and he said so you're going to run anyway aren't you I said yeah yeah I'm going to go and run the marathon um he said well okay let's you go and do that he, he was he had a, a a meeting with some other cardiac specialists who were actually looking again uh, this is luck uh the this uh this consultant had an interest in athletes with heart problems and okay. often uh, we'll come back to the cardiac athletes later often we meet mm. consultants who don't have an interest and they just say stop doing it yeah. But he had an interest and he was having a meeting in Europe with some other specialists who were looking at athletes with heart problems. And he said, look, I've got this meeting. You go and do the marathon. Then we'll get back together the following week, So, which we did. Uh, I ran 3.03 at that marathon, my first marathon, which was OK. Amazing. It was um, coming off the Twice. back of a 1.17 half. It wasn't. It was, you know, I wanted to go there and run 2.50. Everything kind of fell apart. I went through 20 miles in 2.10, I think, and it was a really hot day. And I ended up pretty much walking in the last six miles. Okay. Um, but, 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 yeah, no, but I walked in the last six miles in 50 minutes. So, you know, so, so there we are. It's, you know, I've come in just over three hours. 
it was okay. They had lots of other worries going on because of this heart diagnosis. Yeah, for sure. I won't make excuses. That must, no, well, that um, must have been playing on your mind massively because you obviously... Well, it, it was, and on my family's mind, I think, as much as mine. Yeah. Um, so it was always going to be a, you know, a bit of an issue. Um, so I saw the consultant a week later, and he said, well, yeah, you've got a pacemaker. So oh. um, Heavy news, Russ. Jeez. Yeah, heavy news. It's heavy news when you speak to the technicians. The consultant was very supportive. Um, but... Uh, you try and find things out. This is this is before Google. This is before the internet. Yeah. This is at a time where you really, you know, you can't find out information. You can't get, uh, you can't get information. Oh, I'm an athlete. I've been running all my life. Uh, now I've been diagnosed with this. What can I do? And you, you can't get access to to that level of information. Thank God for you know the internet and the, the access that we have now. Um, so that I'll was actually going to that was actually going to be one of my questions because obviously. I wanted to find out if there was any kind of like support ne- network because we're, yeah, like you said, we're so lucky these days that we've got access to so much information. But, yeah, it must have been really, really, really difficult. It is. It's frightening. It's frightening because your your family and your friends are all worried about you. Um, you, you I spoke to several people at the hospital who said, well, you know, uh, I said, can, what can I do about running? And they said, well, you won't be running. You, you have a pacemaker. You won't run. You can do a bit of gardening or something, but you shouldn't be running. Wow. We've never had anybody who's run before. And I said, well, there's got to be some way through this. Um, so uh, I I had, uh, I think, six months, four months, five months at that point before I had the pacemaker fitted. Okay. So I carried on running, um, ran this 303 at London. I ran um, 59 minutes at the Great South Run the week before the operation because I thought well, that's the last chance I'm going to have to run the Great South Run. Uh, so I'll get my sub 60 um and uh, and went in for the operation so uh so as i say a lot of the medical support was was erratic i think at that point and yeah. uh, and i'm not i don't think i i don't think i'm not blaming those medical specialists the the technicians they were as concerned for all of their patients and i was an odd one out i was an outlier here's somebody who runs marathons who runs all these things who wants to carry on doing that who's being fitted with a pacemaker and they would err on the side of caution yeah, and I, don't blame I, I understand them for doing that. that. Yeah, um, I don't blame them for that, but it was a frustrating time. Um, so the consultant said, "Well, you can try carrying on running." So I got that pacemaker fitted. I think it was about November 1996. Took two months off, two or two three months off to let the wound uh, clear up because you get a basically you have a a metal implant in your upper chest which is about the size of a of a digital watch. Uh, you okay. have that and then you get wires that go down to your heart. So uh, two wires running down to my heart and this uh, metal implant, which went on my top right, top left hand side of my chest, okay. uh, which, which sticks out a mile because I was actually really very skinny at that point. Um, and so I got this big lump on my chest where this, this uh, device was implanted. You had to let it all clear up. So you had to let all the wound heal and everything before you can exercise. Mm-hmm. So I took a two and a half, three months off. So I did, I think, two months training for the following year's marathon. Uh, and went okay. to the 1997 London Marathon and ran 3.04. So I thought, well, actually, that's pretty good. Um, I've had very little training. I've come off the back of having this pacemaker fitted, and I can still run just over three hours at London. Um, so that kind of set me off. Uh, by chance, I did the Hastings Half Marathon. I used to do it every year, which is a fantastic race. Incredibly hilly, but it's a fantastic race. Mm-hmm. And uh, a cardiac technician at Hastings Hospital 
um, Lars Andrews, who he was doing some research uh, about uh, runners with medical problems. And he put a call out of the half marathon and said, has anybody had any heart surgery or heart issues? I'd like to talk to them. And I got in touch with him. And he said he was starting to try and develop a, a network, a support network for, for athletes with heart problems. Yeah. And it, became, it was called the Cardiac Athletes. So I'm a designer. I ended up designing the logo for the Cardiac Athletes. And I said, well, okay, I can do a newsletter. This is, again, pre-internet. So I did. I do a, a newsletter every couple of months with stories from uh, from people who are sort of carrying on running or taking part in sport after they've had some kind of uh, heart intervention. So there were people who had bypasses, who've had um, stents fitted, all sorts of things. Uh, pacemakers like me uh, that were were doing pretty well. They were coming back and doing Ironman, or they were, or they were just going managing to go and run 5k or whatever it was. They were managing to do to exercise. Yeah. Um, uh, over and above the kind of remedial heart classes that you get at the hospital. So we started this this network um, and and I will sort of leap forward in time because now it's uh, it's online and through Facebook and through the website and it's a global operation. It's uh, it's fantastic. It's a brilliant support network, which involves cardiac specialists around the world who've got a particular interest in, in heart disease and uh, heart interventions and where people can access advice and support and more than anything it's a, it's, a, it's a support network where people can say look I've had this problem and they're in the position that I was in 1996 but they've got someone to turn to they can ask and uh, and we we don't give I don't give medical advice far from that but we can give encouragement we can we can point them towards the kind of kind of uh, consultants who are interested and will mm. give them advice and we can say, well, actually, yeah, your, your consultant has said, oh, no, you wouldn't be able to run after that. But here's 100 people who are still running after that. Perhaps you could speak to another consultant. Yeah, it's just share, um, allowing people to share their stories. It's just um, it's, it's, it's really valuable um, knowing that there are other people out there in the same boat who, uh, yeah, who, like you say, who were managing to find a, some kind of running life after their uh, their conditions. Yeah. It's a really fantastic thing. I think like. Yeah, it's a fantastic thing to have been involved in. I guess seeing it grow over the years and and seeing how many people's lives that that network has has um has, has affected must be must be you must be really proud of that. Oh, it's fantastic, and there are some incredible people there. There's uh, there's one guy that uh, I, I chat with friends about. Um, he he lives in Eugene in Oregon. Uh, he's uh, an American runner, obviously, um, and he's had a few problems with an Achilles injury. He's had Achilles surgery several times over the last three years. When he turned 50, which was three years ago, he ran um, just, I think, just over, a fraction over 30 minutes for 10K. Wow. And uh, he, he, he still goes out and runs. As a, he's, in his, he's in the Masters uh, category over there now. So he's 53 now. And he runs the, against the young, youngsters in the national championships. He t- I think he took on second prize last year. He ran the 5K. I'm pretty sure it's just over 14 minutes. Um, wow. as a 50, 53 year old and this is a guy who's had heart surgery um, so uh, so I'm not going to beat myself up too much there's some people out there that are just extraordinary uh, that have had heart interventions they've had bypasses they've got congenital defects whatever they might be but uh, but they're doing some amazing things. Mm, fine so, fine example, yeah, definitely. So learning about that, you know, if I'd known that in 1996, it would have helped me. So um, it would have helped me my motivation. It would have helped actually be to be able to talk to family, to talk to my mum at the time, or you know, people that were worried about me at the time, saying, "Oh, are you sure about this, Russ?" And I say, "Well, here's some other people who are doing similar things, and here's some doctors that actually say, no, this is quite a good thing to do.'" 
and we'd yeah. rather you were active rather than um, than wrapping yourself in cotton wool uh, because on the one hand that's unhealthy and uh, and secondly you've got to live your life um, you've got to live you know live the way that you want to live rather than uh, than hide away because uh, that's that's important yeah no for sure and you, you know it's it's funny because i i you know preparing for this interview as well and finding out about the cardiac athlete support network i put in i put a friend of mine in touch with the with the webpage recently who's just been uh, diagnosed with with some kind of heart condition and they're not entirely sure with yet but uh yeah yes yeah, so why you know even just from from me talking to you uh we've already managed to put somebody somebody onto the network so i'm sure Fantastic. it's like having a positive really positive effect on people all over the globe which is incredible but russ do you do you mind um just for those who don't know like uh so you have so you have this pacemaker fitted and stuff um does it does it just kick in when it needs to does it just intervene occasionally yeah, when it, it does when it there's there's different people have obviously different conditions my condition is an electrical signal block which causes a kind of um slightly erratic heart rate at, at low revs um so when i'm resting so it, it doesn't really so my pacemaker let's call it a parachute it doesn't really do a great deal um most of the time so when i'm running it's not really doing anything it just sits there okay. um when i'm resting so when i've had when, when i could have face problems is when i'm asleep uh okay. or when i'm sitting down for a for a period of time where i'm very tired um then potentially i could have problems uh where it's where the heart starts beating out of sync uh, or it misses beats and my blood pressure drops so it's really not doing a great deal most of the time so i'm not right. pacemaker dependent there's a, there's a technical term called pacemaker dependent if you're pacemaker dependent if that pacemaker was taken out you would die um we will come on to some other illnesses later on but um uh so my pacemaker i'm not dependent on it in 2008 okay. i was very ill and the pacemaker was taken out for a week because i had some some illness which was to talk about and then uh, I think I went and ran the Clarendon Marathon and then went back in. And uh, so I ran the, I've, I've run two marathons without a pacemaker, that one in 1996 um, yeah. and and the one and the Clarendon Marathon in 2008. Every okay. other marathon I've done has been with a, pace, with a pacemaker. Oh, amazing. OK, that's good. All right. Now, it's just good to kind of uh, get a little bit more information about, about what yeah. they are. Obviously, I didn't I didn't know much about them. And you've described the size and stuff, which gives me a better idea on uh, on, on what it is and what it is and kind of how it fits there. So it just sits above the skin and um, yeah, it's got the blow, blow skin. Part. Yeah, so you got you basically you just have a, you end up with a lump on your on your chest. Most people, most normal non-runners, it doesn't notice because they've got kind of fatty bits on their upper chest, um, around their shoulders, uh, around the, yeah, where when where, where the breastbone is. So it just goes yeah. in there. It, it kind of they cut a slot, slit, and they just stuff it in, and then stitch it back up. So it buries itself in, in the kind of fatty bit at the top of the chest. But when you're um, a little bit skinny or very skinny like I used to be, or I'm still reasonably skinny, it does it does start, stick out a little bit. OK. And you mentioned you did mention earlier when I when I said to you that, you know, that must have that must have really scared you and stuff. You mentioned briefly that, uh, you know, obviously this had a, like an impact on your on your family and they're worrying about you every time you're, you're going out running and stuff but is it is it fair to say that was one of the reasons um around this time that you joined the, the Portsmouth Joggers running club absolutely yeah that's that was yeah that was was the reason um I I I'd been running as I say running Tunbridge Wells and Tunbridge for years uh, in in the, up until the 80s moved down to Portsmouth was running on my own through the through the early 90s had this pacemaker fitted and uh, and as much as anything it was uh, concerns from my wife and from from friends said well 
we're really not sure about you going out running on your own. I was working in London um, and I was commuting to London. So I'd get the train to London at ridiculous time in the morning, get back at ridiculous time in the evening and then go out for a run at 10 o'clock at night. Um, nice. Sort of cross country. And um, and and people would, would be concerned about me if I end up in a ditch somewhere. Um, then it might be useful if there was somebody else who was running with me and knew where I was. So uh, there was a lot of persuasion that said, well, it might be good to come and run with a group regularly rather than just being doing all this on your own um, mm. and uh, and taking risks. That's so really I joined cool. Portsmouth Joggers, which uh, uh, which what which was fantastic. I think it was it was we had a a, a really good network of people. Some people I still run with um, and uh, and still interact with. Some people you've had on the show. Um, that uh, that that kind of grew over probably ten years between the sort of mid nineties and uh, and mid two thousand five to two thousand and ten. Okay. So it ends up having a, having a really good network of people and really good teams. Uh, so Portsmouth joggers were winning prizes at uh, in the, the road race league and the cross country leagues and things and um, right. uh, and that that started working really well and it was it was just great to be with a, a, a alongside a, a peer group uh, something mm-hmm. that I'll, I'll, I'll talk about later is uh, you know a, a peer group of other people that can egg you on can encourage you you can sort of turn out to run with is is part of the, I'd always run on my own I'd spend 20 years there running on my own and then I was running with other people I think there's a benefit to both um yeah. but i suppose as i'm now i'm older i prefer to run with other people it's nice to be able to have a chat with someone to, to, to yeah you can run a bit further a bit faster you can be pushed on a little bit um to, that's great to, to, to network with other people yeah that's good and you you obviously formed uh formed friendships and and running buddies with um, some of the distance runners at portsmouth joggers like yeah. uh, martin bacon who you've mentioned uh, sandra yeah, uh, Bob Maguire came up, I think, and Ken Ivory yeah. as well. Or, Ken, you know, yeah, Ken, Ken was an RAF runner. He's, he he moved he's moved away uh, a few years ago, but Ken was an RAF runner. He was a sort of 250 uh, odd marathon runner in the RAF team. Used to run a lot with him. Uh, Bob Maguire, who many people locally will know, whether in the Portsmouth joggers or outside, who's uh, who's been running um, pretty much as long as I have, maybe even longer than I have. He's, he's about mm-hmm. five years older than me, Bob, um, and he's a legend. He's someone who he was running. Uh, things like the LDWA, the Long Distance Walking Association events in the 1980s, uh, and those yeah. those uh, I run those with with Martin and with other people nowadays. They're brilliant. I don't know if you know about. Do you know the LDWA events? Yeah, I've seen them before. They've been recommended to me as um you know to use for for training for some of the Centurion events that I do, yeah. and um I haven't yet been to one, but yeah, I'm, I, they're very much on my on my radar. They're great. There's, there's the Winter Tanners, which we've done loads of times, which is in January up in uh, up at uh, Leatherhead up on the North Downs. It's a different route each year. It's about 30 to 32, 33 miles of okay. mud and hills. Um, and there's the Gatliff Marathon, where it's a Gatliff 50K. But actually, if you can get anything less than 35 miles, you're doing quite well on that. Um, you get a, a bunch of, uh, you get a set of directions. You print it out and take it with you. So you'll end up with about 20 pages of turn left at the next footpath, turn right at the gate. Um, so it's like reading a book whilst yeah. running, a, <laughs> running an off-road marathon. Um, but you, they, they cost, you know, if you join the LDWA, which is about £15 a year, these things cost a fiver to enter. There's checkpoints on the way round. At the end, you get a jacket potato and a cup of tea. I mean, you, you know, what, what more can you ask for? Wow. Um, so they're dirt cheap and people can walk them, can run them. And it's, it's not a competition. I mean, they take the times and they, they publish results. But really, it's just, yeah, we, we use these things as training runs. We go and do marathons, 20 milers, 30 milers on these things. 
there's one around the devil's punch bowl that's really good okay um so you get some lovely cross-country out of the way paths they, they the walkers go out and map them so that they they give you a set of directions which are really good you have to follow the directions and you've got to be really good at following the directions they don't give you a map they just give you this list okay um, and uh you, and they're very well mapped very well uh, organized and they look for some very obscure routes so they'll take you on little tiny forest trails and uh, and footpaths that are way out of the way so it's not on mainstream uh not south downs way north downs way kind of stuff uh, okay. it'll take you off uh, out, out of the ordinary I, I, I definitely need to get involved in one of these Russ and maybe that one in January is a good idea because that, that hits on two key weaknesses of mine which is uh, my ability to hike at a decent pace and my ability to get lost so yep. <laughs> probably gain some good skills in both areas there yeah yeah perfect um so definitely like so back to portsmouth um joggers it sounds like you had like a really good good few years there and, and like you say a little bit back into the competitive arena although albeit with a you know more kind of relaxed fun kind of club uh you know not to take anything away from the racing next i know it's i know it's always always hard and stuff but yeah it sounds like it was a it was a really good few years there at portsmouth joggers and yeah, are you still with the club now yeah i'm still in the club i, I mean uh i'm actually I'm in the club. I changed to second uh, claim Portsmouth Joggers a few years ago because I joined the 100 Marathon Club. Cause so um, I've done, I think, about 140-odd marathons and ultras now. Is that um, so yeah. so when, I, when I got to the point that I got the 100 Marathons, uh, it was a chance to join the 100 Marathon Club. It took me 20, 20-odd years to, to do that, to get that 100 Marathons. I'm not one of those people that's, that goes out and does three marathons a week or or goes and runs around a lake for you know for, yeah. you know, or every day for a week just to get seven marathons out of it I took, it took my time okay. um uh, to get to that point and when I got the 100 marathons I thought, well, it's an honor uh, yeah and I'm a 100 marathon club and I was doing more marathons and ultras at that point so I decided well the Portsmouth joggers I I'd, I'd competed for years uh things like the road race league so you do a lot of half marathons 10ks 10 milers where we were really good uh, was before they changed the rules and regulations on the ha- R- Hampshire Road Race League. They used to have a couple of 20-mile races okay. in the uh, in the league, and we used to beat uh, all the other teams, so the you know, Stubbington and uh, um, and Winchester, etc. Over the, the over the long distances, we were really good okay. at that point. But the but the short stuff they could they could beat us hands down, and then the Road Race League dropped all the longer races, so it really became this one half marathon. There's a whole bunch of 10ks. And we're never going to catch a, a track club um, over 10K, but we could catch them over 20 miles. So uh, so it kind of steered it away from us a little bit, I think. And I started moving into, as I say, longer distances. OK, cool. Um, now, in 2008, um, you had a pacemaker change operation. Um, yeah. and, I, and I don't know how this fits into exactly where we are on the timeline now, but I wanted to ask you about that because... Um, obviously, is this something that you have to do when you have a pacemaker fitted? Do they get changed regularly? And... Yeah, no, normally a pacemaker, um, there's some technical stuff here. The pacemaker this, is this basically, as I say, it's a little like a digital watch that's kind of been planted in your chest with a wire that goes down to your heart. So what it does is it monitors how your heart's beating. And if your heart misses a beat or it starts acting erratically, it's, it spikes. It sends a signal down down this wire and it triggers your heart because your heart's just an electrical device. Basically, if you stimulate it with electrical uh, current, it'll it'll uh, pulse. Um, yep. So basically, it sits there, it monitors, it checks what's going on and it, uh, it spikes uh, when it needs to. Uh, so that's, what, that's the way my pacemaker works. So normally they last 
around seven or eight years uh, before you have to have them changed because the batteries run out. Okay. Um, so I, at that point, mine had been in for 12 years. So it had gone way beyond where it would, it's normal life. Um, I was very fit. Uh, and it's another, you know, here we come back again to one of the problems of, of being a runner that you're not the kind of regular patient. I'd run up to the hospital for my checkup every year. And I'd yep. be sat in a waiting room with uh, with a bunch of people with no offense in, in wheelchairs and, and with Zimmer frames. who yep. was yep. 30 years older than me. And and I'd be the last one left at the end of the afternoon, and they'd come out and say, "Are you waiting for someone?" I said, "Well, no, I'm actually waiting for my pacemaker checkup," um, okay. because they weren't expecting me to be the person that they would be seeing. As for the, now, they've got used to me now, and they know me yeah. out of the hospital. Um, but basically, because I was I was fit and I wasn't encountering any problems, they kept putting me at the bottom of the list for the pacemaker change. So my battery was was running out, and it'd been running out for several years. But there was always some always another patient that was more urgent that they get their okay. pacemaker change. So when I was rushed in in 2008, basically my pacemaker had stopped working, and it didn't matter because I wasn't as I say I'm not dependent on it. Uh, but it had to be changed quickly at that point. So I went in to have it changed and there was a problem. There was uh, the, the, the pacemaker operation, change operation seemed to go OK. But a month later or three or four weeks later, I was starting to feel really, really ill. And uh, I was having sort of flu like symptoms. I was very grey. Um, I was re- really sort of struggling with uh, with fatigue. Okay. I didn't know what was going on. So I went to saw my GP. He said, uh, my GP at the time, uh, and he said, oh, maybe you've got asthma. And I thought, well, why, why would I have asthma? He said, oh, some people do develop it. So he gave me an inhaler and they were sort of, you know, kicking around all sorts of different sort of diagnoses. Mm-hmm. Um, it took several months to get to the point that I, I was going seeing the doctor saying, it's just taken me 45 minutes to run 10K. And they said, yeah, but that's quite good. And I said, well, no, it's not. Because <laughs> I, I, I'm already running you know, 10 minutes quicker than that. Well, there's something going wrong. Yeah, um, you, and, you know, you know, don't you, when you're when you're digging into those kind of areas of, of, yeah. of pain. And you, and and you know yourself and you, you, my, my doctor and the GP, I changed GPs after this experience and my doctor's fantastic. And he says, look, you know yourself. He said, if you come and see me and you say you've got a problem, I believe you. You've got a problem because you know your body inside out. So yeah. I went to, uh, they couldn't get a diagnosis. And eventually I um, did a blood test and they tested for like on the infection level. And this score on this blood test should have been less than 10. And it was something like 160. And they said, oh, there's a problem there. So they took me into the hospital and put a, a, a camera down my throat. And they put this hose pipe down your neck uh, to uh, to sort of uh, take pictures and, uh, and and scan you from the inside. And they discovered I've got this massive growth of vegetation around my heart. Wow. And it's called wow. it's called endocarditis. It's like a cauliflower. Uh, it grows around your heart and it attacks the heart valves and the heart walls. Um, and it was, and it's serious. It's, it's, it's incredibly serious. Um, so within, I think, 24 hours, I was taken into hospital um, for uh, intervention. And uh, so I was taken to the hospital. I walked into the hospital, and they said, "What are you doing walking?" They said, "From your from your results, you shouldn't even be conscious. You know, you shouldn't even be standing up." And I was put in an isolation ward in the hospital in QA, and they started pumping chemicals through me to try and kill this vegetation. So basically, I spent three and a half months on a drip uh, wow. in in QA hospital. Um, and uh, my wife was told, well, they didn't tell me, but they spoke to her and said, look, um, get your paperwork in order uh, because he's not going to survive. Um, you know, Gee, it, was right. um, because it's it's a it's a fatal illness, and it and it and it's it's some people do survive it, 
but they're severely um, debilitated um, by doing it, by having it, from having it. Because it attacks, it, it strips out the heart valves. So they have to have the valves replaced. They, you know, if, if their heart survives, they have to have the valves replaced, and, and there's a lot of knock-on problems that come from it. So I spent three and a half months, I think, in QA on a drip, and um, then I was transferred as, as they managed to get the, the the infection under control. I was sent over to Southampton Hospital, General Hospital, and they did an operation. They took the old pacemaker out, and they had to take the the, the unit out and the the wires and everything. Um, and the wires were embedded in the heart. They've been they, when they change a pacemaker, they leave the wires in because the wires are kind of going to your heart anyway. Yeah. So they leave the wires in, so they just connect up a new one. Okay. So they connected up a new one, but then because all this this what this what had happened, this infection had started on the skin when they did the operation. It tracked inside and tracked its way down the wire, uh, and then grown around the heart. So they had right. to try and get the wires out, so the, the wires wouldn't come out. So they had, they, they, had to, they had to cut them off. So there's some embedded bits of wire in the in the end of my heart, and my heart's really badly scarred. But luckily, the valves were still working, um, and uh, and it and I managed to basically get away with it. Um, so yeah. came out of hospital. I was told by the same consultant who'd been dealing with me for for 12 years at that point. He said, well. Yeah, you can start. You can get start running again. You can get back to running. But he said, uh, "How far? Do you, how far are you going to run?" And I said, "Well, I don't know. You know, I might just I might go for a for a run for a, an hour." Yeah. Um, and uh, and and he said, "Well, I wouldn't go more than five miles." And meanwhile, my friends at Portsmouth Joggers, that was that's Tony Conway who's been on your show. Tony and um, yes, and Derek uh, and Steve um, were visiting me in the hospital, and they knew that I'd been talking for years about doing the trail walker, the uh, the the hundred k on the South Downs. Okay. Uh, we talked about it a number of times, the Gurkha run, uh, which Tony talked about in his podcast. Yeah. And we talked about it. And so they said, look, Russ, if you get out of hospital, we'll do it. We'll do it next year. We'll do the 100K. So I didn't want to tell my consultant I was going to go and try and do 100K. But uh, but that was a kind of motivation to get back into it, to go back out and um, and, and try and step up a little bit on, on the distance. Fantastic, um, and and you did you did that event um, in memory of your mum who who was I did yeah that's supporter. right yeah my, my mum but at the same time as this my mum was going through a second battle with cancer she'd survived it once and she was going through it again um, and one of the most upsetting things uh, of my life really was my mum uh, was desperately hanging on um, to see that I survived to see that I was okay yeah. um, I came out of hospital in I think September. Uh, 2008 and I entered there was a one-off uh, Hastings Marathon there was it was it was incredibly hard very hilly uh, like the half marathon but it was a Hastings Marathon as, a, as an anniversary there's a one-off event uh, that year uh, which was in December okay. so I entered the Hastings Marathon um, so I think I had about 10 weeks uh, from coming out of hospital to get to the point I could run that marathon um, and my mum lived over, over near Hastings at Bex Hill so okay. I went over to uh, to Hastings, managed to run it, um, 3:22, which wasn't bad. Um, yeah. uh, after after six months off and three months, four months in bed. That's really good. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, my mum my mum came out to see me, um, came out to watch, and uh, it was the last time that she uh, she went out of, out of home before she died. Oh, Russ, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, but so, uh, she um, got she got she got to see you recover and and get yeah, around that marathon, which is amazing. She got, she got to see me recover. She got to see see me finish that marathon, and um, yeah. I'm choking up now. And um, it's okay. Take take and your time. She eventually take died, time, and so 
as a as a it's kind of tribute to her we did um we said we'll do the trail walker and we called ourselves uh, phil's little soldiers because um tony mentioned this in his talk mm. um and my mum's my, my name was phil and she used to wind me up my mum used to come and see me race and she said go on my little soldier and it would it would always wind me up and i'd always tell her to piss off um <laughs> so um so we did Phil's Little Soldiers. We did the, did the Trail Walker, uh, which you've heard about from Tony's podcast before in uh, in 2009 yeah, um, yeah. Uh, with Tony, Steve and Derek. And a whole bunch of people from the joggers came and helped. We had uh, Sarah, my wife, uh, as, as leading on the support crew with uh, with the other wives and girlfriends uh, with Lou and uh, Michelle um, and, uh, and Eileen. Uh, so uh, they were you know, sort of leading the support crew. Um, but we had a bunch of other runners as well. Uh, so Martin, Sandra, a whole bunch of people came out and uh, ran sections with us to sort of egg us on, uh, which was a fantastic experience uh, to, to yeah. do that. Um, I ended up over the next few years, I think I ran five trail walkers and two trail trekkers, which was the one that the, the, the uh, Pennine Way version of okay. the same event. I went up there with Tony and Derek and Steve and we took the record up there. So we, we, we won the civilian race in 2009. And uh, and set a couple of records on that. I did it once actually. Uh, I think 2012 with the, um, the Jersey team. I, I said to, there was a, they were came and coming over to try and take on the uh, the, the, the the course record, um, okay. so the the civilian record. And they they were saying online, oh, we're going to come and try and have a go at the record. And I said, well, I'm in the team that's that's done the record. I could come out and help you navigate some of the trickier sections of it. So I'll come out and join you. So I'll drive along and see you at different points and just lead you through where some of the awkward bits are. Um, and they said, yeah, that'd be really good because they couldn't get, couldn't recce the course before they came. Of course, they, 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 the week of the uh, the event, uh, two of their runners got injured, their, their reserve and one of their runners. So they phoned me up the day before the race and said, um, can you step in? Uh, so, uh, so I had to go and run the, I'd never met them before, before the start line and run as, oh, run wow. as part of a team, uh, to, to, we got the mixed team record in, in appalling conditions. We had major thunderstorms of flooded checkpoints and things, and we wow. managed to take the records and then, uh, uh, and through meeting these, these guys from Jersey, which was, uh, which was extraordinary. Great result. Brilliant. That's good. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sorry to bring up all those, all those horrible memories and, uh, you know, no, but it, it must no. It must have been, um, yeah, it must have been amazing to, to do that event and, you know, especially doing it, doing it in memory of your mum and stuff. It must have been yeah. like pretty special, special run. And, and it sounds like you had so many people involved, which. It was. I think that's something that, you know, that, that's, that's, that's stuck with me that we we talked about, uh, that we would chat about in, this, uh, in yeah. this podcast is that I think there's so much goes on behind the scenes. There's so much behind every runner. So like behind every man, there's a great woman. There's uh, or behind every great man, there's a woman. There's uh, there's behind every runner. They're particularly ultra runners. Um, there's a whole network of people. There's the people that we train with. There's the uh, there's the people that do the things like massage therapy. Tracy Dean has been dealing with me for 25 years you know, for regular massages. There's physios. There's coaches. There's um, our teammates. Yeah. There's our uh, families, our wives, our girlfriends, our, our kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's all those people that we uh, that we expect to put up with it when we're out running all day. Um, so true. And, yeah. and and those people that come out on the day to support to you know to to offer some moral support when I when I first did the GUCR I was astounded I turned a corner about 60 miles into the GUCR and uh, Davina Gladding who's uh, one of the old one of the stalwarts from Portsmouth Joggers who's, yeah. who's, who's brilliant her and her husband and daughter had just turned up at the, at the GUCR to um, mm-hmm. to just wave a, you know ring a cowbell 
and wave a giant foam hand and say, go on, Russ. And they, they'd just driven there in the middle of the afternoon, in the middle of the yeah. day, to come just see me run past. And that was it. They're an amazing um, trio. And, the Gladdings were an amazing trio because I always see them around a park run and I'd love to get them on the show at some point. Yeah, brilliant. But, they, yeah, yeah. It's, it, it was just that it's just extraordinary when you get that. You get those people and you think, actually, that's really we ought to offer some appreciation for those other people that are there to, to, to facilitate what we do. Um, yeah. you know, to, to to help support us and and guide us and and run alongside us, or or even just shout at us. Yeah, um, that's a really good point. Yeah, there's there's lots of people you know that don't get involved in the running as well. Like you said, you know, families at home that you have to leave, and friends that, that don't see you on social nights out, and there's all sorts of things that that suffer. And uh, you know, even when they're not involved with the actual running and racing. So yeah. 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 Always good to think about. Um, Russ, now we've got um quite a lot of like of races that you've done like a lot of long races and, and and i've got them jotted down um hopefully we can chat a little bit about each of them but um over the next few years like i guess two, two 2010 kind of onwards um you obviously dipped your toe in and started running some some ultra events yeah. like uh, comrades marathon yeah. um, but you did your first um 100 mile race uh, as well at the thames path 100 yeah um and obviously yeah you mentioned- i did i did um comrades yeah again i think tony talked about comrades comrades was a brilliant yeah. event i mean that was that was a fantastic race um and I'd, I'd love to go back there i was lucky actually that in many ways i went over with ken ivory my mate the, the marathon runner yeah. he, he'd run it before and uh, and we went over to try to have another crack at it um well he wants another crack at it um and ran just just a fraction over eight eight and a half hours on that um and and it was the uh, it was the world cup year in south africa so uh so it was world cup year and there were all the world cup flags and uh, and it was Brilliant. just an yeah. extraordinary event um it's a it's a weird one I'm, I'm not a big fan of big city races i've done obviously london marathon half a dozen times and a lot of the big city marathons but mm-hmm. uh so it is crowded but uh but it's extraordinary when you're in the middle of nowhere running in the hills of, of south africa at, at six o'clock in the morning or seven o'clock in the morning it's still dark and there's and his family's out in their Sunday best cheering you on. Yeah, um, I've heard that. Uh, and you think, well, <laughs> where have these people come from? And there's a competition between the between the uh, the aid stations to be the best. So they'll they'll have go go dancers and people hanging from trees and <laughs> discos going on. They've got you know ice cold drinks in the middle of in the heat in the middle of the day. Um, Sounds incredible. You know, it's it's incredible. Yeah. So that that was good. Uh, Comrades was good. Then uh, yeah. So I I was due to do South Downs Hundred. There was uh, there's one that Tony did and Martin did, uh, and Carol from the from Pulse of Dogs and Bob McGuire did it. Um, okay. So a number of people were doing that. It which was must have been 2012. Um, I think I was due to do that, and then I was I was having all sorts of problems with just tiredness. I was I. One of the one of the knock-ons from the the treatment from the, the hospital mm-hmm. treatment that I had in 2008 um, was that it completely messed up my bloods. Um, that they were pumping basically bleach through me, sort of you know really powerful chemicals through, through well. me for four months, um, oh. and my, I had very very low white blood cells uh, and a lot of other problems. Um, so when I was having blood tests, they they discovered well I'm not recovering. Um, I I can. I can get tired, but then I'm taking a long time to get better. Or if I get get a cold and the cold will last me months or if I get the flu, then it will last me six months. And I was getting all sorts of problems. So stepping into ultra running probably wasn't a great idea. Yeah. Uh, you know, combined with that. 
but I, but I, I so I, I stepped out of the uh, the South Downs hundred. I actually budded Tony and Martin uh, that day on that one, and then <laughs> made my debut in 2013 at the Thames Pass. And the Thames Pass 2013 is what that one that's gone down in legend, where the whole course was flooded. Yeah, you said um, it sounded awful. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that you had to cut off the course that rather than run from from Richmond to Oxford as it as, as it normally does, uh, it went from Richmond and went as far as Windsor. And then went back and two. Uh, it was about 105 miles in the end. Um, and the river was coming up. There were stretches of it that were waist deep in water. And uh, and the river was getting higher and higher during the day and during the night. Uh, it was mud. It mud all the way through anyway. We had snow. We had mud. And uh, and just at the start and finish, you had to go through basically waist deep, which became chest deep water. Um, what? Uh, f- four high, times. <laughs> four times through this water um in in sort of sub-zero conditions it was extraordinary um as it turns out that was what was one that martin won that race actually martin bacon uh he won that one which was which was phenomenal uh derek counts as a triathlon i think with that with that much water yeah yeah. derek powers was running it too i was running it for something the joggers so he was his his debut hundred i think and my debut hundred um, so that went that went okay. I mean, what I found one thing that was useful for me. I, I won't call it race walking, but I found that walking is a useful skill. And yeah. uh, and I don't walk. Yeah, obviously, I'm not walking six minute miles on a, a on an ultra. But I have found that uh, one of the one of the tips that I suppose for for an ultra run that might be worth thinking about when you're running in uh, in difficult conditions, in muddy conditions. Um, what I've noticed was that a lot of people when they were on the um, the tarmac, uh, they would walk, uh, they would they would run, and then when they were on the uh, on the really rutted and muddy ground, they would walk. Okay. And I was doing things the other way around. I was I was uh, I was running through the muddy ground and the rutted ground, uh, and the difficult ground, and then I would take a walk on the on the tarmac, and I could overtake them walking on the tarmac when they were running. Um, okay. And and overtake and I'd overtake them running when they were walking on the on, on the on the muddy bits because when you walk on muddy bits you you are very very slow it's much easier it's like they, they they that tip they give to old ladies isn't it when they go when it's really icy outside and and snowy to to actually try and jog rather than walk okay um, yeah you know, so I think uh, it's it's it, you you can make you can cover more ground by by jogging rather than walking on yeah. muddy ground and you can you can get your rest by walking quickly on firm ground so yeah. that was a, that's a useful tip there you go George, like, like you said it's one of the threads that you wanted to get out across in this in this interview was the importance of walking and, and hiking and, and ultra running and the fact that you had that experience as well like ra- doing the race walking must have been really beneficial as well but it's a really it's a really good point i mean we all know how well um dave harvey did at uh, at grand union canal last year um with a with a race walk strategy a run walk strategy as well so yeah super important stuff and i think yeah it like is. you say if you yeah. You've got to, you have to you have to walk with a purpose. I think the, the point about the, you know, the ultra running, which is obviously something that we're we have in common and uh, and and that you try to uh, talk about on the on this program, um, you've got to be able to walk with a purpose. So it's so it's so easy to step into walking that it's a it's a two mile an hour dawdle. Um, yeah. But a but a good you know three to four mile an hour or better 
um, you know, in in this in the later stages of an ultra can can pay dividends. Yeah, for sure, and it is still extremely tiring because uh, we all know when you, when you're there in those dark moments and you're trying to you're trying to knock out a walk at that pace, it you know it's 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 extremely difficult as well. Yeah, it is. You've got to march. Okay. You've 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 got, you've got to be able to you'd be able to march. Yeah. You've got to be able to sort of relax and swing your legs, and um uh, and it's using different muscles to running. So mm. if you can if you can learn to sort of switch back and two, I, I found this. When I was running a lot of marathons in the early 2000s, I was running a lot of trail marathons that actually I could swap back into running and walking later on if I wanted to and yeah. still be doing, you know, eight minute miling um, uh, because uh, because I, I'd, I'd probably walk a quarter mile and run three quarters of a mile each mile and and we still get eight, eight and a half minute miles out of it. Yeah. Russ, we need we, we need to go for a run, dude, because I I really need to get some get some useful tips <laughs> off of you because my my um my hiking ability is terrible. I have I have people overtake me all the time. I I can't seem to I seem to be the one putting in the most efforts, but but this definitely this by far the slowest. Yeah, uh, it's really hard hard thing to do. Um, Russ, quickly, uh, you so you've done a number a number of long distance events and and yeah. you know including Grand Union Canal three times, Spartathlon, Rocky Raccoon, which I'd like to chat about a little bit as well. But um, we'll, we'll dip into those those events. Um, are you are you still coached or were you coached by James Elson from Centurion Running as yeah, well? Yeah, I was for a while. Yeah, yeah. James coached me for about three years, I think. He doesn't anymore. Um, okay. We we dropped a couple of years ago. I was getting so many injury problems. Uh, uh, again, it's one of those recurring issues that's, as I say, the, the, the problems that I had in 2012, 2013, um, I think at that point when I first tried GUCR, I managed to crash out. I managed to not finish Sparta. I didn't finish GUCR. I crashed out about 105 miles unconscious, um, ended up in an ambulance, uh, mm. which wasn't good. Uh, Martin, Martin Bacon was buddying me at that point and thought I'd died. Uh, that, was, that must be that was a real worry, really. yeah. With everything going, was, with everything you've been through, it must have been bloody really stressful for anybody well, around you. Yeah, it's, wor- it's worrying for a buddy. I was, we were 105 yeah. miles in. I was, I was probably in about fifth place uh, and going okay in the in the GCR, but having a, having a few problems at that point, and uh, and I just blacked out and hit the deck. Um, oh. In a, yeah, and um, and luckily we were in a, a, a stretch of the of the canal where there was a there, there was some houses nearby, and there was a party going on over the over the other side of the canal in a, in a garden. Uh, there were some lads over there having a party, apparently, uh, and uh, they kind of saw what was going on and came over the bridge, uh, pissed, uh, and uh, and called an ambulance and then got a, got a coat or something and put it over me. Wow. Um, okay. Martin said he, he he just looked at me and my eyes had kind of rolled back and I was I was unconscious. Um, and uh, and so the ambulance had to come out, which was you know a bit of a problem. I did, mm-hmm. you know, at that point, I mean, you know, after I'd been checked out by the ambulance, they, I said, look, I'll get out and carry on. But um, but I'd already the team had already uh, pulled me out of the race, which uh, <laughs> which, yeah. uh, which was probably the sensible thing to do. Um, yeah. But yeah, so that that, and then I went to I got into Sparta the same year. Um, I'd been over the year before because Martin had uh, had run Sparta. Uh, and and thought well I put an entry in but didn't really expect to get in and didn't particularly want to get in at that point uh, and I made it to just before the hundred miles just before the mountain at Sparta and I had a similar kind of problems uh, just fatigue issues and as it turns out as I've learned over the last sort of seven or eight years this these blood issues have uh, have kind of come to haunt me um, yeah. that uh, that my recovery can be weak and I get ups and downs I get I get points where I just uh, really struggle to to recover or i can get very very tired and it's very hard to dig yourself out of it 
so that's kind of one of those things that's uh, that's knocked me back on the, on um, on GUCR and Sparta the first time around. Um, yeah. But then I came back from that and uh, I managed to yeah, it's my second GUCR was my um, hundredth marathon actually. So that that was my uh, my qualification for the hundred marathon club was I'll get my hundredth marathon. I'll do it as GUCR. Let's make it a big one. Cool. Um, so uh, so did that one. And then went uh, as, as as you say, was, you know, a few more, quite a few more marathons and uh, and fifties and those kind of things, uh, and then over to Rocky Raccoon, which you wanted to talk about. So, yeah, Rocky Rocky Raccoon's a, a, a race I've. You know, I listen to a lot of running podcasts, and and a lot of them are based over in the states. So you often hear about these like Lake Sonomas and and obviously Western states, and I hear about Rocky Raccoon quite a lot as well. Um, so yeah, I kind of googled it and kind of found out where it was, and I think it was. Um, just just near Houston, just north of Houston or south That's of right, Houston. Right, yeah, it's just outside Houston. You you can get it's in February each year, and um, James recommended because James Elson was coaching me for a few years, as I say, and um, yeah. and James recommended he'd been over there, and uh, and some of the Centurion guys had, um, and it's a fast course. It's quite a fast course, um, and he said, well, Rocky Raccoon, it's four laps of twenty five miles. Yep. And in the forest, uh, just outside Houston, you can get a cheap flight to Houston at that time of year. So it's, it, it was pretty cheap to get over there, hire mm-hmm. a car, drive up to Huntsville where the, where the race is, get a cheap hotel, go and run the race. And James, he gave me some really useful tips. One of them was to stay on UK time, um, which might sound bizarre, but I was only there for four days. I was flying over there, registering, mm-hmm. um, getting up for the race. And you've got to be up at four o'clock in the morning to go to the race. So it starts at six. So you've got to be up at sort of, you know, four Okay. American time. Um, so if you stay on UK time because they're five hours behind us or whatever, then um, then actually nine a.m. start. Nine a.m. Nine a.m. in the morning. That's pretty good. You get up at nine yep. o'clock and uh, and go in and start in your race at eleven o'clock or whatever. Good it is. tip, James. So, yeah. So <laughs> it's quite cool. The only thing that's quite strange about it, the, the hotel I stayed at was a you know, cheap um, holiday in place that was opposite a Walmart. And it's a, the Walmart supermarkets. They're, they're, they're legendary in America. They're huge. So you've got a Texan mm-hmm. Walmart that's open 24 hours a day. Um, so so you're going out to get something to eat. And over there, it's it's like two o'clock in the morning. Um, you know, so you've got to get some breakfast yeah. uh, at two o'clock or three o'clock in the morning over there. Whereas over here, it's like eight o'clock or whatever it is, eight or nine o'clock. So you kept staying on normal time here. And and you're just amongst the zombies in the middle of the night, wandering around wow. supermarkets in America. Um, yeah. So you're living a nocturnal existence while you're there. But <laughs> um, well, it doesn't have pay off because you go over there for four days and you come back and you don't you don't have jet lag. Um, you've yeah. stayed on you've stayed on UK time largely and, mm. uh, uh, until you come home because it's not worth trying to switch your body over um, yeah. to, to 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 move by six hours, five or six hours. Um, back in time and then forward in time again. It's not worth it for for, for a trip that's only going to be in a three three or four days. Yeah, and I think after a hundred miler as well, Russ. You know, you know, we all know how exhausted you are after that. I don't think your yeah. body really cares much about the flight. It's just like it's more worried about recovering from from the race. I think so. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So so it, it, that worked out well. That was a good tip from James. Um, yeah. I've used it once or twice with trips to America actually, where I've done short trips. Um, okay. So, um, so yeah, went over to Rocky. Rocky's a, it's a great race. It's, they, there were some problems two or three years ago, James went and did it and there was a really bad storm and a lot of trees down and they had to change a lot of the course. Okay. Uh, and he said he wouldn't go back until they, um, they straighten out a little bit because, uh, there were some problems with it. But, mm. um, 
but I, yeah, I had a, had a good run. It's, it, it's very, very foresty. It's, it's a forest. You, you're running around a giant lake. I, when we were driving into the... Uh, Russ Tullock came over with me to crew me, which was really generous of him. So Russ came with me. Yeah. Uh, and we drove down to this, this park, and we, we drive into the park in the early hours of the morning, like I say, four o'clock in the morning. And um, and they say, oh, there's a sign up saying, oh, the you know, wildlife, we, yeah, watch out for wildlife. So I said to the ranger, well, what are the wildlife then? He said, oh, they're alligators and vultures. <laughs> oh right okay what are those big birds that are all sitting there along, along the side of the lake? oh they're, they're the vultures um <laughs> so you run around this uh, this forest and it's a bit like sections of the back end of qe park or the north downs way it's undulating and it's really really rooty if that makes sense it's okay. it's, it's yeah. kind of narrow footpaths with lots and lots of tree roots so um me being me not picking my feet up very well uh, i think by the time I'd fallen over about 15 times, I was starting to get a bit fed up with it. Um, you know, and uh, I think in the last lap, uh, I got to the, the third lap and Russ said, look, you know, I was running well, but Russ said, look, you can get under 18 hours here. Um, but the last lap, I lost half an hour just from falling over. I, I thought I'd lost some teeth at one point as I sort of hit, oh. hit, hit the deck. Um, so I was getting pretty cheesed off with, uh, with, with falling over. Yeah. Um, but... Um, but yeah, so uh, so ran ran it well. I did 1837 around that. So I was got the first vet, so I won the Masters Prize over there. And thirteenth place overall as well, which is 13th great. Thirteenth overall, yeah. What so, a result! Uh, so it was a pretty good run, and um, I think I'd run. It was just off my PB. I'd run 13 1836, yeah. <laughs> you know, the year before uh, in the Winter Hundred. So that I'd run what used to be. It's now the Autumn Hundred, but it used to be the Winter Hundred. So it used okay. to be a bit like, slightly later in the year. So yep. I'd done ninth at the at the Winter Hundred in 2013 at, for for Centurion, and then Rocky Raccoon. I oh, saw it's three years later. I was I, I, I 1837 at Rocky Raccoon. So they're both. I'm really pleased with those. I think those those go down as two of my best runs. Mm-hmm. I think. Amazing. It was, I, I, I did look at the results and stuff for that year and on the Rocky Raccoon website and just, just to kind of get an idea of how many other Brits went across. And there, there were a few. And I think you actually came up uh, when I said I was Googling kind of to get a bit more information earlier. You came up in somebody else's blog. I think there was a there was a James Stewart from Scotland who was there yeah, who you got to yeah. share a beer with. Um, so that was quite interesting, interesting as well that came up and just kind of tied together with the uh, with the info I was gathering. So that was that was quite nice. Um, He's yeah, brilliant. Been... He, he won it. That, that was the second time I went. And James won the race. Oh, uh, right. Run Rocky Raccoon. And he's he's phenomenal. He, there was, a, he, he was there with his family who were acting as his crew. And mm-hmm. um, he had a, he, they were out at the far end of the course. His brother was there and they were sort of phoning back and forth between his dad at the, at the, uh, the checkpoint, at the, at the, at the finish, start and finish checkpoint, and his brother at halfway round. And uh, he got to the last lap in the lead. And um, the second runner had a buddy and he didn't have a buddy. And the second runner started to catch him a little bit, started putting the foot down. Um, so they, they phoned ahead to his brother to let him know, well, look, they've they started to gain on you a bit. And okay. James said, so I'll just put the foot down. And he, he ran, I think, the last 10 miles, sub seven minute miles in the dark over over through woodland trails. Wow. It was it was under 70 minutes through the last uh, through the last 10 miles. He, he's he's incredible. He's absolutely would- brilliant. I wouldn't have wanted. Uh, I wouldn't have wanted to trip over any tree roots going at his pace. Bad enough when you're uh, when you're going slower, but um, now he's he's a, he's a great runner, really is. Yeah, absolutely amazing. I mean, Russ, like, I, there's so much more we could dig into in these races, and I, I really would love to uh, to pick your brains when we go out on a run at some yeah. point and speak more about them. But obviously, I don't want to keep you 
uh, for too long, um, but also wanted to find out and ask you um, what the future holds and what, what kind of races you've got coming up, what PBs you want to break. Um, are you going back to Sparta at some point or Grand Union? What, what, what kind of stuff have you got coming up on the horizon? Um, I think it's difficult. I think that the health problems that I've had and the last couple of years, the kind of, there's been a few injury niggles and, as I say, the, the underlying sort of blood level problems and things are probably pushing me away from doing too much um, okay. and I'm having to be a bit careful. Having said that, I am quite tempted by something like the Thames Ring. Wow. Um, I uh, I would like to go back and do GUCR again. GUCR, it, I, I love it. It's, it's, it's a race that actually takes me full circle. It's something that really reminds me of my school days. My school days were you, you go and do a cross-country race or whatever it might be. For As I say, no prizes, nothing. Yeah. You finish uh, and you put your sweatshirt back on. And if you're lucky, they give you a, a cheese sandwich and say, right, bugger off then yeah well um, done <laughs> and gucr yeah, well done shake your hand yeah. and gucr is just that there's none of the razzmatazz there's none of that uh the, the big sort of you know big city marathon party atmosphere and supporters and all that kind of stuff it's just yeah. you run for 30 odd hours in in the pissing rain and uh and in all conditions and everything else until you're absolutely exhausted and you get to the finish line which is just a man standing next to the canal with a flag uh, with, with with Dick and Keith, and they shake yeah. your hand and say, "Well done, thanks very much. See you next year." And yeah, away I, you I go. Love mm. I, I love it. I, I absolutely love it. I think there's something, there's a magic to the to things like the GUCR, the canal races. I did the Liverpool Leeds in 2016. I was second in that, um, and we had a a, a a major thunderstorm overnight. So coming over the Pennines, it was the, one of the worst thunderstorms I've ever run in. So it was, it was you know midnight through till sort of four in the morning running through shin-deep water with frogs jumping everywhere um, and, and and people people keeling over with i was i think i was in fourth place at that point and i went and i got second place in the end because only really because one guy overtook and the other one got exposure uh, and, and ended wow. up being pulled out of the race with exposure which i felt sort of really sorry for him but i'm quite glad i overtook him but um, but it was just incredible conditions. But the, the, again, there was you know the, the the canal race was it's it was the basic infrastructure. There's not going to be anybody there going to mo mollycoddle you through that. Yeah. You yeah. Know, after, after the first GUCR when I dropped and I'd hit the deck, I went back the following year and uh, and Dick said to me, "Well, try and keep your face off the canal path this year." <laughs> you know, it was uh, which was which yeah. was great. I, I I didn't think that that would have uh, much of an impact on me. I I didn't really consider it. But I I before I attempted Grand Union last year. Um, I, I knew that it was a very kind of low key event and that, you know, things weren't weren't you know made to be this fantastic big kind of like you know, support network and, and you know, flags going and fireworks or whatever. Um, but it really did have an impact on me and I, I really liked it. I, I thought the event was great. And, you know, saying that there's not that kind of effort put into the decoration and, you know, like I say, music blaring and stuff like that. The, the 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 people you met at the feed stations were bloody amazing people. They were yeah. they were so good. Um, uh, yeah, you're really it's well. Incredible. It's, 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 it's a it's a runners event. It's a runner. Yeah, it's like you get a runners runner. It's a, this is a this is a runners race. Um, yeah. And and there's something that I I love about it from mm. from that point of view. I've run as I say, I've run a lot of marathons. Some marathons I've really liked. Some marathons I yeah I'm ambivalent about. Yeah. Uh, around the world but um uh but of the ultras i think the gucr or the canal races in general have got a bit of a magic to them 
Um, okay. and, I, and I like the Centurion. The Centurion, I think James does a brilliant job with Centurion, and I think they are incredible races, particularly for beginners. I think yeah. They, yeah, they've got everything, and they and they are really. And they, I, I'm a regular course marker for Centurion, so where I talk about the the support networks and the people behind the scenes, I'm one of those people that's running out ahead of the race uh, regularly okay. to uh, to mark the course up and and all that kind of thing. All those kind of thankless tasks. People, you don't, you, know, you don't even see those, see us. We, we, you don't see us at the aid stations or anything. We've already been and gone. Well, I'll take this opportunity right now, Russ, to say thank you so much. Because <laughs> yeah. I tell you what, those those bits of tape on the course really do keep you uh, keep you good and keep you on on the right track. They're 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 absolutely brilliant. They do they 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 really do help. Yeah. Um. Yeah. They've they they were a lifesaver because often I I mean I can get lost really easily, like I said earlier, and uh, I know both Jason Skiro and I have have, have you know been. We've both said at the end of those events at the Southdowns Way, you know, wasn't the course marked really well? So well, I think, yeah. I think the, the, there's a few of us that have been doing it for a few years and James uh, tends to sort of fall back on and, and, and rely on us, whether we're marking or we're going back and double checking and double marking. And there's yeah. things, there's some really, I suppose, I think fairly obvious things, but it's things like sight lines. It's knowing that when a runner's approaching a corner, where are they going to see the tape and making sure that when they've turned the corner, you can put another piece of tape to, to reassure them that they're going the right way. It's just you. a lot of the time it takes it takes so long to mark out a course. You're doing about three miles an hour. You think, well, I can run it quicker than that. I can, I've only got to do 15 miles of the course. I can get that done in you know two hours or something. But yeah. you can't. It's, it's going to take you sort of five hours to do that because yeah. you're going back and two, back and two at each point, each gate. You're making sure you're marking marking it double marking it going back and having a look are they going to see that as they approach it are they going to get confused with, with where this split in the path is it's, it's really quite technical yeah absolutely and, and and on that point you know i think the way the way you just said that you've spent the time kind of thinking about it from the runner's perspective that really that really does come out come through and shine through when you're doing the run because there were often times where we weren't too sure if we'd just follow a bit of tape or not and then you just look ahead and you see another bit so yeah. It definitely it definitely helps and yeah the, the level of thought that, that you guys put into it, it helps and and again i can i can just reiterate the point that you said about james elson and, and centurion events i think they're, they're really great and they they care about the runners they care that the runners finish and get the best experience out of the event as well and i think yeah. they're kind of like a really good gatekeeper to to events obviously when people run them they rack up points for things like utmb and i think that helps you know, just you know, be, be a good kind of gatekeepers for events like like UTMB as well, where things can get potentially dangerous. Yeah. Um. So you're learning about what kit to take with you on on a hundred milers, um, how to kind of run safely and stuff. And I think that kind of transfers forwards to when you're on the mountains at UTMB because I spoke to James at the running show briefly uh, this year and said to him about that. You know that that you know you, sh you should be proud that you've got that kind of network going and all the all the support with the centurion community on facebook because yeah it really really makes a difference i think when people go on to to hot to maybe more more dangerous or difficult races so yeah it's fantastic it really is good yeah so 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 looking ahead as i say from the races i don't know i think i'd like to go back and do a canal race again i probably i would like to do another hundred um yep. uh, and preferably a quick one um but uh i know martin did berlin a couple of years ago which he, he recommended and said it's a pretty quick course okay um so maybe or maybe uh, there's one there's one in america called brazos bend have you heard of brazos um, I, I have actually have you you've have you run that i've run the 50 um i yes. ran the 50 in 2018 um and i i won the masters race there actually but um wow. uh after getting lost but uh brazos is interesting because that's around a um 
it's a, a state park that's basically an alligator park. Uh, so you, oh. you go over there at uh, again at four o'clock in the morning and it's pitch black and uh, and you line up and start at six o'clock in the morning. So you're running in the dark for the first hour and a half. And all you can hear is these kind of odd bubbling noises and things. And then as the sun comes up and you're running on these kind of narrow trails and there's a lake either side, you start realising there's eyeballs in these in these lakes and there's things watching you. Uh, Sarah came over. Sarah was there with me, with the wife, and Sarah did the 10K, and, um, and which was run slightly later, so that was running daylight. And mm. she said she came over a bridge and there was an alligator next to the bridge that was, I think, it was about 12 foot long. Um, you get a briefing at the start that says uh, if you get how to pass an alligator on a path, um, and yeah, no basically you, you, you don't <laughs> don't go don't go in front of it and don't go between it and the water because it will scare it. It's, it needs to know that it's got a, it's got a route back into the water. Mm. Um, and uh, and and the people say, oh yeah, it's only it's a big big heavy armored thing, isn't it? You know, but those those alligators can run at 30 miles an hour. You ain't gonna outrun one. Yeah. Um, so uh, so you're not gonna outrun one. You're certainly not gonna outswim one. Uh, so um sounds very interesting to, experience sounds very similar to the to the, to the bear experiences when you're over in the u.s and you go you go on these walks and say they say i went for a walk in the in the blue ridge mountains one day on the, on the on the east coast and they give you a pamphlet about what to do when you encounter a bear no thank you yeah. <laughs> I don't want I, that to happen. <laughs> I love the national parks. There's a video when you go to Yosemite Park. There's a video in the visitor centre there saying, "Well, why not? Why you don't leave food in your car?" And there's and there's this bear that walks up to a car. Someone's left a sandwich in the car or something, and the bear just grabs the door and pulls the door off. I mean, it's, it, it's, there's no, there's no nicety mm. about it. That that bear, you know, it takes the windscreen out, pulls the door off, gets in there. Whatever's in the boot, whatever's in the car, is, you know, whatever you you've left your lunchbox in there, that bear's going to have it. Yeah, thank you very um, much. It's mine. <laughs> yeah, they've got an incredible sense of smell, and they are amazingly strong. So. Cool. Well, listen, Russ. Um, at the end of uh, every interview, I don't, I don't know if you know this, but I like to ask um what I what I call some recovery run questions. So just yep. uh, a bit of recovery after that after that long interview. So uh, <laughs> these are quick fire. Answer them as best as you can. Um, if you don't have an, don't have an answer, that's fine too. But um, I'm sure you will. Uh, so number one is uh, what is your ever, your best ever moment in a race? Oh, um, that's a difficult one. I know. That's a difficult one. I think um, in 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 the ultras, I think pretty much all the ultras, I would say it's finishing. And uh, and and one of those things that I used to say when I coach marathons and I coach ultra runners, uh, and I say, well, they said, what do you think about? And yeah, finishing. Uh, I just, yeah, you go through a lot of pain and you're going to go through a lot of soreness and, uh, and, and I've got a pretty, I'm a pretty good finisher, not in terms of a sprint, but, uh, once I scent that I'm within sight of the finish, I'll drive and I'll, and I'll get there. Good. Um, and it's all about crossing that line and, uh, and being able to stop. Great answer. Um, is there somebody out there who's inspired you in, in your running through your life? There's a number of people. There's people that are, that are, that are club runners that are lo- locally. So some of those people at the joggers, people like, as I say, I still run with Martin uh, regularly, Martin Bacon, who is uh, a bit, you know, he's an inspiration and a nemesis in many ways. I mean, he'll listen to this and he'll take the piss out of me constantly for that. Uh, but we've, uh, yeah, there's 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 something there that we've got uh, a healthy respect for one another. But there's a, there's a competition too. Uh, and that goes back to, you know, the, the, to my race walking days, there were one or two people in the British team when I was a race walker who were very, very good. And there was always a, a healthy respect, but also at the same time, some uh, you know, a challenge. 
Okay, good. And listen, um, if if you do see Martin in the future, please let him know that I want to, I want to get him on the show at some point. So yeah. uh, if if he's willing to do it, and then you can take the piss out of him afterwards. So yeah, that sounds good. good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, do you have a favourite running route in or around the Portsmouth area? Um, I like I like a lot of uh, kind of semi-urban, semi-industrial places. Uh, yeah, they, obviously it's easy to get out to Kiwi Park and run on the South Downs or you know, yeah, Butser mm-hmm. Hill and those kind of things and some countryside. But I kind of like this, the uh, the back ends of things. So, yeah, the, uh, I, where I live in North End, uh, there's a route you can run around the back of the firing range, uh, which can be quite eventful when they're firing. Um, ah. uh, and uh, or there's there's trails that you can run. Uh, when I was running on Sunday this week with Martin, we run from Wickham regularly. You know the Wickham lines. Yes. Uh, but we tend to because we're bored with the Wickham lines, we tend to run in other directions and just find our way. So we were to go out and run for a couple of hours. So we headed down through Knoll and uh, and out round the back uh, of Borehunt, uh, and that was that was quite nice. There's a lot of kind of semi-rural, semi-urban areas that I like. Okay, great. Uh, what's your your post race meal or routine? Something you like to do to kind of spoil spoil yourself at the end of a race? Uh, I'm notorious for eating anything. Uh, I'm <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm quite happy. I, I'm not a, I'm not a, a a kind of picky eater, and uh, and I'll do anything. I think one of the one of the hundreds I did. I think it was the uh, the winter hundred. Uh, that I did. We we drove back, and uh, by the time we got back home, which was mid morning, I realised that the all you can eat curry house was opening at twelve. Oh. Uh, so decided, well, I'll have a shower, and then we'll go and get a curry. I didn't last that long in the curry because I've been up <laughs> I've been up for thirty six hours at that point and run hundred yeah. miles. Um, so, but uh, but no, I gave it a good go. Cool, good man. Uh, could you recommend a good book or a film about running um, that you've read or seen? Um. I'm sure many people have recommended. I think um, uh, James Adams' book is is, is, is great fun. Uh, I think uh, Feet in the Clouds is a good read uh, about mm-hmm. fell running. Um, I think uh, Survivor of the Fittest, which I think Tony recommended, uh, mm-hmm. I think is not necessarily just about running, but that's brilliant. That's a really interesting book. Cool. Brilliant. Thank you. Uh, and listen, Russ, lastly, um, I always ask people if there's anything they want to kind of say about um, the running community in general down here and on the South Coast and, and specifically Portsmouth, because that's what the show is all about. Uh, runners like yourself, uh, you know, you know, running and just being awesome and, uh, you know, inspiring each other and helping each other along. So is there anything you want to add? Um, I think there's a great scene down here. I think there has been. I've, I've enjoyed 30 years of it. And uh, and there's a great network. I think the park runners uh, has lifted things in a in a different direction. I was I wasn't sure about park runs when I first um, when James actually first said go and do a park run a few years ago and it nearly killed me uh, for the yeah. first time I'd run that short and that fast for a long time. But um, those kind of things have built up a kind of a wider network of people that I think have been really quite inspiring. So I go and do those things regularly. I help out sometimes or go and join in. Uh, there's a group called HF Runners. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a group at Paulchester, and they were a couch to 5K group that has kind of evolved into a, a little club. Um, a lot of uh, couch to 5K still goes on there, but there's some people that are, that are up to marathon and beyond, and I've helped out with those. Okay. Uh, and that's a nice little network as well. So I think there's a there's a there's a number of people that I'd give a heads up to: HF runners, uh, Portsmouth joggers, 
uh, and the other clubs in the area that I, you know that, that I've seen come and you know evolve over time. So Fair and yeah. Crusaders, I've seen these clubs uh, uh, you know build uh, Baffins. Uh, they, you know, I've seen those those clubs kind of start up over the last mm. 10, 15 yeah, really years. Have. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you, Russ. Much appreciated. And listen, I, yeah, just massive thanks again for coming onto the show and, and sharing your experiences and your story. Uh, it, it's been really fascinating, actually, like you know, getting to know and, and, and see and read about all your achievements and your running and racing and stuff. So, um, yeah, a really fascinating story. And I'm sure everyone's going to find it very interesting. Um, and I think your story kind of like shows how, how resilient we can be as humans, um, especially runners, you know, um, what you've been through and stuff with your health and the fact that you're still running and racing strong and you've You've got targets to hit some, you know, coming up and you want to go back and do some some big, big runs. I think it's it's brilliant. It's a really good story. I um, mean, I look forward to sharing some miles with you soon when we can get out. Excellent. Look forward to it. Russ, thank you so much and take care. Thanks, Adam.